Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. The Unclaimed Property Division is holding unclaimed funds from medical bills, uncashed paychecks, savings accounts, and more. To see if you have unclaimed money, you can visit findmassmoney.gov. And the trustees. You can ring in spring at Nomkeg in Stockbridge with the annual Daffodil and Tulip Festival. Colorful seasonal blooms April 19th through Mother's Day. Advanced tickets required. More at thetrustees.org spring. Today on Boston Public Radio, President Trump has put a huge emphasis on the military from bringing retired officers into his inner circle to making increasing military spending a priority. And let's not forget the, his yearning for a military parade. But is he at risk of alienating the military community by attacking one of their own, Admiral William McRaven? Or will this go the way of the attacks on John McCain, the Gold Star family, and the war dead he did not honor when he was in France? We take on this and more on today's Politics Roundup. A CIA assessment says Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Salman is responsible for the death of Jamal Khashoggi. President Trump says let's not be quick to judge what will be the consequences if the crown prince and the House of Saud are not brought to justice. We'll ask Charlie Senate about this and other global headlines. And at noon, we open the lines and ask Boston, are you ready for motorized scooters? I don't think Jim is. More is <laughs> next on Boston Public Radio. Brady, I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Um, Jim is injured today, and we're impressed that he came to no, work. I, I don't stop. I mean, I have a little knee thing or whatever, and I may be on crutches, and I may decide to power through it because I have yep. such deep devotion to the listeners. It was a hit and run to the listeners. by a bicyclist. Well, it was almost a hit and run. We'll get into that a little bit Outrageous. later in the show. But thank you for your uh, empathy or whatever it You're is. You're welcome. So in any case, over the weekend, President Trump went to Northern California to take in the areas that have been devastated by the deadly wildfires. When asked what the government could do to prevent future destruction, President Trump said it would be a hands-on job. Take care of the floors, you know, the floors of the forests, very important. You look at other countries where they do it differently, and and it's a whole different story. I was with the president of Finland, and he said we have uh, a much different, we're a forest nation. He called it a forest nation. And they spent a lot of time on raking and cleaning and doing things, and they don't have any problem. And when it is, it's a very small problem. So uh, I know everybody's looking at that. They are. But is raking the forest floor just another way of sweeping the realities of climate change under the carpet? Join us to talk about this, president's latest attack on a military hero, and other political headlines are Dante Ramos and Joanna Weiss. Dante's a columnist for the Boston Globe. We also is editor of the Ideas section. Joanna's a GBH regular and the editor of Experience. It's a magazine published by Northeastern University. Great to see you both. Hi. Hi. Great to be here. Well, we'll get back to the raking situation and the fact that the president of Finland has now said he never discussed raking with Trump, and he's not sure what the president is it's talking a about. Technicality, actually, <laughs> it's a technicality. as far as I'm concerned. But let's talk about um, some other uh, races that have ended now from the midterms. We have uh, Bill Nelson is not going to be the senator in, in, in Florida. He lost to uh, Rick Scott. And, of course, uh, Andrew Gillum has uh, conceded in the uh, governor's race in Florida to DeSantis. I guess this is not much of a surprise, although we've seen the Democrats picking up some other seats. I think they're up to 37 now in 37 the House. and. They essentially have turned Orange County, Reagan land, into all Democratic land. So what do you make of the – is this a, a blue wave? Is this why Trump is in a snit? Is this why he's talking about raking things in <laughs> Finland? Uh, I 
I need to answer that in three parts. Um, I think the the it was a blue wave. The Democrats lost seats in the Senate, but the the map, so to speak, was terrible for them. They were defending a lot of seats in states where the president uh, president won. I will say that I think the aftermath of the the midterms where we've been waiting essentially for a couple of weeks for results shows how the initial conventional wisdom about what happens in an election is formed in the Eastern time zone on uh, the night of the election. Mm -hmm. Because when we get results from the West Coast and in this age of early voting and large scale absentee voting where it takes weeks to count votes afterwards, uh, you know, it just shows that that people are used to expecting results right on Election Day, and we have moved away from that. Uh, By the way, the Mississippi Senate race is still unresolved. And in a runoff, there's it's not impossible that an African-American Democrat could be the United States senator from Mississippi, which would still leave the Republicans because with a majority because of some racist comments made, made by the Republicans. about how she wanted to be in the front row at a hanging, which was – I mean, there are demographic changes across the country that are driving this and certainly in a lot of individual house races. Of course, the one constant is that Florida remains the place where it's just that that ultimate battleground and that Florida does not have its act together even remotely in terms of elections. We were just talking about I mean, it is outrageous that they can't that that in Palm Beach, what the ballot boxes were overheating and flowing up and every county has a different kind of ballot. I mean, the state absolutely has to get its act together before 2020. Well, Florida, what's interesting about Florida, A, it's really strange that they have different ballots and different, completely different systems by counties. But it's also pretty clear that the system is built so that if 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 there's if the race is a blowout, then they don't really have that much tr- trouble because they don't have to count all of those votes. But every election in Florida seems like there's some kind of very close election requiring manual tabulation. And, and counting is hard. And counting is hard. And and the fact that they haven't quite figured this out yet is astonishing. But by the way, Florida wasn't the only place where there were some problems, arguably some deeper problems in terms of uh, voter suppression, actually, is in Georgia. Stacey Abrams, here it is. I guess you could call it a non-concession concession yeah. speech, in the, speech in the race for governor. This is on from Friday. To watch an elected official who claims to represent the people in the state baldly pin his hopes for election on the suppression of the people's democratic right to vote has been truly appalling. So let's be clear. This is not a speech of concession. Because concession means to acknowledge an action is right true or proper. As a woman of conscience and faith, I cannot concede that. Uh, Again, again, that was Stacey Abrams, the uh, Democratic nominee for governor of Florida, who would have been uh, uh, Georgia, who would have been the first African-American woman governor in American history. You know, there have been some stories written since these races have been uh, finalized that despite the fact that Andrew Gillum has lost, despite the fact that Stacey Abrams has lost, despite the fact particularly that Beto O'Rourke has lost, one of your columnists, I can't remember who in your paper, uh, 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 Dante, said uh, Beto is now amongst the front runners. I can't think of somebody who immediately after losing a race, even if it's high profile, uh, 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 immediately came back and had some glorious political career. We mentioned that Barack Obama got crushed in his first race for Congress. I think he lost by 35 points. But after that, he won subsequent races before he was president. Is this all just filler for journalists or what's the deal? Uh, Some degree filler. Abraham Lincoln did lose a crucial Illinois Senate race before coming back uh, 
I think it oh, was that's the a following, good one. The, that's a good the following one. election. So, Whatever happened to him? So it does happen. <laughs> um, but uh, th- th- there is some amount of filler. For me, the, the most important thing that Stacey Abrams said was not the non-concession, but it was the second part of it where she uh, dedicated herself to this effort to roll back some of the voter suppression and to, to deal with some of the irregular irregularities and problems in the process. I think that's something that that Democrats uh, who are on the losing end of a lot of the voter voter suppression stuff have not figured out that it's part of their job to try to roll that back and to organize people to get voter IDs and to uh, fix the vote counting apparatus. And and this should be their cause. And it's 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 noteworthy that she has signed on to that. It's pretty tough, though, when they when the guy you're running against is the secretary of state and has the ability, unfortunately, to manipulate things. Right. Totally. But what Abrams is saying is this isn't fair, but this is the reality that we contend with. So I'm going to concentrate on. Uh, turning that around. And I would say for the Democrats, and I think Stacey Abrams knows and realizes this, the the fact that so much attention was put on that issue, the fact that this race could sort of galvanize so many people around that issue is a victory in itself. I mean, there's new attention. You know, I was also, I was at an event right after the midterms with Ted Landsmark, who's head of the Dukakis Center at Northeastern, real expert on on demographics. And he was, his take was that for her to even get that close, for a black woman in Georgia, a black Democratic woman in Georgia to get that close, you can't discount that that in itself is a is a demonstration of change and a victory. Well, you know what I also wondered? Um, if this does come into another court challenge, the Supreme Court kind of screwed this up in the first place by saying that we didn't have to worry about this kind of thing in the United States of America anymore. We have obviously a much more conservative Supreme Court, but I don't think that necessarily means conservatives are in favor of voter suppression. So you wonder if, if maybe they may, if maybe this is wishful thinking, but if a court case were to come before them again, they might. What do they do the Voting Rights Act? They weakened it dramatically. So, I, mean, I yeah, guess you they, can make the case I, I, but they know. don't care that well, much about no, the issue. No, I think they weakened it dramatically. And the argument from Roberts was we don't have this problem anymore in the United States. Clearly, we do have this problem in the United States. And maybe this would be a chance to rectify the mistake that they made. What that would take, though, would be for Congress to pass new legislation, um, essentially you know, fixing the hole that the Supreme Court shot in the Voting Rights Act. It can't come through the courts? And uh, I don't believe so. Probably other legal experts would know better than I, but I... I, And there are none in the room. I would would not expect that to happen very soon. Yeah. Can we move on to another... uh, You know, I have to say, there's so many things that I I don't understand. I don't understand after the infamous attack on John McCain by uh, Donald Trump about... That was candidate Trump, of course. I like my heroes not captured... The attack on the Khan family after Kizer Khan gave that incredible speech at the Democratic National Convention. Why Donald Trump pulls so well amongst the military. The latest is this this attack on Fox News Sunday. He was being interviewed by Chris Wallace on, as the uh, Washington Post referred to it, one of the military's most revered members, retired Admiral William McRaven. Here is uh, the president. McRaven. Retired Admiral, Navy SEAL, 37 years, former head of U.S. Special Operations. Hillary Clinton fan. Special Operations. Excuse me, Hillary Clinton fan. Who led the operations, commanded the operations that took down Saddam Hussein and that killed Osama bin Laden, says that your sentiment is the greatest threat to democracy in his lifetime. He's a Hillary Clinton uh, backer uh, and an Obama backer. And... Frankly, he was a Navy SEAL wouldn't it have been nice years. if we got Osama bin Laden a lot sooner than that? 
By the way, the sentiment, my apologies for the Chris Wallace was asking him about, was the enemy of the people uh, 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 comment. So you're a member. I, I asked, I think, John King or Chuck Todd last week, why is it that, that veterans groups are not going crazy over his failure to go to the cemetery in France and then uh, to Arlington National know. Cemetery and there was virtual silence? Is there going to be silence on this one? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure there, I'm sure there are people who are grumbling. But if when when you get down to Trump supporters, I just, I, I, there's this sense that they have. I think that you know that's Trump being Trump. That's Trump fighting back because you know it, it, when when he perceives an attack, his reflexive thing to do is pushback. I just think there's a whole level of behavioral forgiveness that people have justified themselves into having because they think that he is, you know, the 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 sort of you know, waving the flag red meat that he that the that he has pushed forth on the campaign trail speaks to them more. By the way, that McRaven has leukemia. I should have mentioned that in addition to everything yeah, else. So not... he and he's so sick that he had to give up his job at the University of Texas, I believe it is. But it's like yeah. these individual things I think people are able to brush off. Do you buy that? I mean I guess that's true so far, yes. Uh I think Trump is running a cult in a certain way, and essentially people believe the the cult leader over the evidence of their own eyes. Well, he makes it tribal. You know, he meet, the, 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 that's what he does. He instantly makes it us versus them. Oh, Hillary supporter, Hillary, yeah, Obama supporter. Hillary and Obama versus our people versus our side. And so you, can, you, you don't have to sweat the details when you're already aligned with your tribe. And here, by the way, is what he told Chris Wallace about why he didn't show up at Arlington National Cemetery after having not gone to the cemetery in France because it was raining. Uh, he said he did admit that he should have he should have done that, but his excuse was, "Quote: I was extremely busy on calls for the country. We did a lot of calling, as you know." So that was the reason he couldn't go over to the Arlington um, National Cemetery. By the way, have you seen the photo of uh, Vladimir Putin at the same site that the president did not go to, standing in the pouring rain with no umbrella, just obviously to give the you-know-what to his uh, buddy Donald Trump? So the whole thing, I guess you could say, is a dumpster fire. Oh, I didn't say that. George (laughs) Conway said that. One of the great relationships going on ever (laughs) Ever. Yeah, and is, he also called it a cult, too. He, he did. He actually he did. absolutely So, did. George Conway, what did he say? I'll move to Australia before I vote for yeah, Donald and Trump he again. he said the Republican Party has become a personality cult, feeding what you guys just said, and that he would move to Australia, unquote, rather than vote for the president again. He voted for them, uh, voted for him the last time, and he did call it a dumpster fire, the whole administration. And by the way, this is, uh, for, uh, I know people know this, Kellyanne Conway's uh, husband. And by the way, on a, mu- on a well, that is a serious note, but on a much more serious note, he's fu- formed this group called Checks and Balances, which is a bunch of very conservative lawyers who are deeply troubled by some of the things Donald Trump has done, most notable amongst them. I'm sure you both remember when he criticized the Justice Department for indicting two uh, Republican members of Congress, Duncan Hunter, and I can't remember who the other one was. Uh, and people like Conway are saying, what are you talking about? If they've committed corrupt acts, allegedly, they should, of course, be indicted. I mean – Okay, call me cynical, but I think George and Kellyanne Conway every night come home and they pour the martinis <laughs> and they clink their glasses and they say, we've got the best thing going. It's like Carvel and Madeline back in the 90s. They've got this great shtick where they're on both sides, so anything they says get that much more attention. They had that long profile in the Washington Post about their marriage. They're, they're, they're like celebrities. They're living it up. So do you think it's a, a plot? 
I don't know if it's a plot, but it is interesting to see the way uh, Conway tries to square his his uh, public criticism of the president with, um, you know, with his with his relationship with his wife. And he said last week that, um, you know, critical of Trump and basically basically credited his his wife with dragging this mess of a candidate over the over the finish line. So it is interesting that he's simultaneously exalting her while uh you know, complaining about her, uh, her, her boss. I don't believe it. I don't believe believe which. I, I, I don't think this is Madeline and Carville. That was much more civil, and you know, two people that were. I think this is vicious. Well, they were pre-reality television, Madeline and Carville. Now we've got all the bells and whistles. I don't know. I think something's going on. I could be wrong. I think something's going on. What does that mean? Something's going on. I don't think she likes what he's doing, and I don't think he likes what she's doing. Wait a second. He, she doesn't like what the president's doing, her boss, or what her husband is doing? She does not like what her husband okay. is doing. It rather puts her on the spot. And you can imagine where the children are in this mess. <laughs> You know, what were you going to say, Dante? No, I'm, I'm, I'm. As, as I felt during the Clinton administration, I'm, I'm, I sort of resent as a citizen, as a voter, and as a voter, as being in a position to have to speculate about the contents of these people's marriage and <laughs> and oh. and to try to understand from that what it means about the country. I, I don't even like being in that position, Dante. That's my favorite thing to do: is speculate <laughs> about the marriages of the different candidates here that we've had, or the presidents that we've had. I mean, look at look at George W. and Laura. Bush. Were they not a couple made for each other? How about Frontrunner? The, they were talking about a beat the press on Friday with uh, with uh, Gary, Gary Hart, Hart and Lee. Well, and... that was not a marriage made in heaven. No, apparently uh, was Obviously, not. but Barack and Michelle, I mean, what do we think? Pretty good, oh, huh? He's still bringing her flowers and stuff. Yeah. He's like showing up every man great. in America. Nancy and Ronald, I mean, come on. They were in love, weren't they? Dante's Dante doesn't care. Not speaking to <laughs> Okay, so so let's get let's get to this whole thing about Nancy Pelosi um, being replaced as the House Speaker. It's it's turning out to be more difficult, I think, than some people like our own Congressman Seth Moulton, who kind of has led the charge to replace her. Expected Dante. I, I Sorry, Dante doesn't like speaking about fights for speakers <laughs> because he thinks it's is that my no, right? I, or, I don't oh, resent okay. that. I think that's I think this is a perfectly appropriate subject. There's no romance involved. There's no romance involved, so we can talk about it uh, from a completely dry. Joanne, did you, did you speculate about oh. the Clinton Bill marriage or what? All the time. All okay, the time. Go but go ahead, Dante. Dante Maybe it's a that. male thing. But so, back to Pelosi. Yeah. So there's two there's two separate things going on. Um, you know the speaker the, the the speaker's job includes both being the public face of the party and uh, being a leader who counts votes and so forth. And Nancy Pelosi has come into the Globes a few times while while I've been there, and she's a very unusual person. You know, she she comes off as someone who wakes up in the morning thinking about counting votes. She literally has said day, that. Spends the day counting votes, <laughs> dreams about counting votes, and then wakes up the next day and does the next thing, and or does the same thing. And it's something that makes her quite an effective legislative tactician, as the public face of the party, she doesn't – I don't think that she presents quite as well and and she's the daughter of a Baltimore machine politician and, and, and comes off precisely that way. And so, you know, the, the, the factions that are looking that – are, that are critical of her, they're looking for essentially something different in a party leader. I guess there's one other criticism of Pelosi that's out there, which I think is in a way the most legitimate, uh, legitimate of the bunch, which is that she has not done a good job of cultivating the next de- generation of Democratic leadership. 
leadership. It, I mean, I think if she Actually, were Actually, I beg to differ you. Uh, Steny Hoyer at age 79 is the next generation see? of uh, Democratic I, I leadership. I think if she, if, if she wanted to uh, throw a bone to uh, any of Seth Moulton and the other people who are, who are critical of her, she should vow to serve another term Except as speaker, but right. also, but also move, uh, you know, move Steny Hoyer and James Clyburn to some alternative senior status fact-finding mission out somewhere and bring in some new people as potential. So is Dante a sexist dog like <laughs> I've been accused of for saying similar things? Well, uh, yes and no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, I will, I will say, I mean, yeah, the, he, one of the things that Nancy Pelosi has done, and it's partly kind of a, you know, a, a part of her job is to support her people and to support the the incumbents on every level. And I mean, that's, you know, Seth Moulton, when he first ran for Congress, he was running against a Democratic incumbent and Nancy Pelosi campaigned hard against Seth Moulton. So, I mean, you know, the the, the disputes go way back and they go, go back to sort of her position and her loyalty. I will, though, say as the public face of the party. I'm not sure Chuck Schumer does much better in terms of, you know, representing the Democratic Party and his his party lost, you know, seats in the Senate. And yet no one's calling for his head. And, uh, you know, actually, is... I have, but I don't have any power. I think they should both <laughs> go, frankly. But, but, go ahead. but there is, you know, there there is Alexandra Petrie from The Washington Post had a terrific, hilarious. She's piece great. Last week. She's, She's on so fire. unusual She's on and fire so talented. Right now. And she had this great piece that kind of nailed this idea that, well, you know, I'm, I'm very in favor of a woman in power, except that the women who specifically happen to be in power today, there's just something I don't like about them. And that really does reflect, I think, the stuff that you hear about Nancy Pelosi. You, Dante, you did lay out a few specific things, but you hear this sort of unspecified, well, we need change. We need new leadership. I don't know. There's something I don't like about her. And it's like, show me the money. The, the thing that Pelosi says that I think is exactly true is that if some other person were the leader of the Democratic Party, whether or whether in Democrats in the House, whether it's uh, a woman or someone else, that person would be demonized by the oh, Republicans totally. immediately yeah. and be made to, you know, if Seth Moulton were going to be the next Speaker of the House, people would say he's the liberal congressman from liberal Massachusetts and he's this, that and the other thing. So I, I think she's right to say that any Democratic leader would be um, would be demonized. I, I don't think it follows that there is no better way for the Democrats to to run the caucus uh, than the way that they have. I been. think the key point is is the point that Dante made a few minutes ago. It's the triumvirate. If it was Nancy, at least from my perspective, if Nancy Pelosi and uh, uh, Marsha Fudge, uh, who's in her fifty six, well sixty six, and there was a forty five year old in that mix. I think the call for Pelosi to step down would be dramatically less than it is. It's 78, 78, and 79. And there's and, – and we heard – I heard Steny Hoyer the other day, who's the number two guy on NPR, uh, 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 and he's talking about how, of course, we're going to have a lot of young members of Congress on our millennial caucus. And I'm adding <laughs> the most demeaning yeah. kinds of crap. The answer is – I mean, I totally agree with you. The only – in my view, the way she survives is she makes a pledge – to say I'm going to serve one more term, at which point X is going to happen, and the, you know there's going to be and 
a set of openings for people who are not octogenarians. Or don't don't give up her, you know, position, but but shove Steny out or something. I mean, you know, that that, that I, I do think. I mean, hope she's listening because I do think that is a, a reasonable solution. Give her her due. She really did work hard, and I think she bears some responsibility for the party's gains. But give some of these new people a seat at the table. So we have to uh, break, but before we do, we uh, we're not going to talk about the forest. Before we Finland, do, uh, in addition to as Marjorie said, the president of Finland saying, uh, "Well, yes, we discussed the forest. We discussed the we discussed nothing." about raking. Did either of you see the faces on Gavin Newsom, the incoming uh, governor of California, and Jerry Brown, the outgoing governor of California, while Donald Trump was speaking over the weekend? It said it all. I mean, <laughs> it really, uh, 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 it, uh, uh, it said all. Quick reflection on the uh, trip to California? I mean, it was it, it, it was word salad. It's kind of like, you know, word when you're salad. when your Aunt Alice at the Thanksgiving table just is talking to Phil Space, and they're just kind of like, here's a word I'll put out, and then maybe I'll say another word, and, and raking somehow came in. I would, in in ever so slight defense of Trump on the forest management issue, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, I mean, forest management is primarily a federal issue out there, and so that's something the government is responsible for. Um, but this question of do you let forest fires burn or do you clear out underbrush is something that they've been tangling with out there for, for decades and have never really found a very good solution for. And, and fires do burn hotter, partly because of climate change, but also because there's a lot of underbrush that's never been cleared out. Often Aunt Alice has like a smidge of a point. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> yeah. Something about a broken well, clock. Is that what it is? A good chunk of this was not even in the forest. It was the chaparral, yeah. right? So that's a whole different issue. And that obviously has to do with heat and dryness and drought and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, we're going over the latest political headlines from the White House to the State House with Joanna Weiss and Dante Ramos. That conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Mardrigan talking politics with the Boston Globe's Dante Ramos and Northeastern University's Joanna Weiss. So I'm very excited about this. As someone who maybe maybe smoked a joint or two in her heyday, maybe mm-hmm. two or three. The pot store is going to open tomorrow up in Northampton, and it is Lester, correct? Lester, yeah. Lester. Lester. So um, Armageddon breaks loose or a big ho-hum after the dust settles? Big ho-hum. We had a great story that Michael Levinson wrote in The Globe the other day where he goes out to Lester and and does the traditional thing of interviewing the people in the diner. And and to a person, you know, not that a diner is a scientific sample, but people gave it an amused shrug. What it deserves is an amused shrug. I think people in Leicester are looking at it exactly the right way. Can you explain why nothing is open in Boston? But we have Marty Walsh on on the 30th. I mean, it's great that something's finally happening, but the the, the, the time delay on this medical marijuana was a total disgrace. Uh, What's... I mean, I think it just comes down to politics and where are the constituencies that have power. And Marty Walsh is going to hear a lot more from the no's than he is going to hear from the, the pros. And in Leicester, maybe, you know, the, I don't think the Leicester Board of Selectmen is facing that kind of pressure. By the way, Boston voted, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Boston vote overwhelmingly in favor of the marijuana the, question? But that, that's not who Marty Walsh is maybe. hearing from. But you guys, I thought you were going to mention the story that just came up on your website today about the uh, early customers are going to be two veterans. Oh, two veterans, yeah. And one of them talked about how he managed his uh, symptoms from the war, PS, uh, PTSD and other things, with marijuana. And, you know, when you think we're in the midst so of So why is he going there? I assume he has a medical marijuana card. I think it's a symbolic card. kind of, okay. kind of thing. Right. Okay. But 
you know, we're in the midst of this opioid epidemic. I remember going to the one in Brookline when I was doing a story for the Globe about the, uh, the legalization of marijuana. There were all these letters, and maybe they cooked them. I don't know. But it, we had real people, real names, real towns, talking about how they got off of opioids using marijuana. It's anecdotal. But it is interesting that that isn't more of a... Uh, especially for Marty Walsh, who's big into, you know, sobriety and recovering from alcoholism and all that kind of stuff. No, I mean, a, a smart and enterprising suburb or city or town might think about that, and you know, and 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 might kind of uh, you know make a pitch. I mean, a, 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 maybe a place. It would be interesting to see if a city that has really been hard hit by the opioid ep- epidemic might make a pitch to a marijuana purveyor to sort of say, "Come on in and and you know, open up shop here and let's see what." Happens. Am I not right that Walsh has said to us, even though he campaigned against the question, as did the governor, didn't Marty Walsh tell us immediately after the election that he was, was his attitude was come on down, the people have spoken, and he would welcome marijuana? I'm pretty sure that was his at least public position. But saying it in general is different from saying no, let's you're right. put it here. Right. The, you second, know, the second veteran, by the way, is the mayor of Northampton, so he'd probably be there. Right. Oh. You know, it's different from saying let's put it here in this neighborhood because then, as Dante, you've written about about a thousand times, then all the people in that neighborhood association are going to come out and they're the loud ones. You know, uh, I read a headline, I think it was this weekend in The Globe, about uh, Charlie Baker after last uh, last uh, the when the legislature passed fairly large salary increases, turned it down, and now he was going to take it, and counting the housing allowance is like $100,000. And before I read the story, I was really upset about it until I read the story. And the story ends with Baker saying at the final debate, which I think was the Globe, et cetera, uh, debate, that he was going to take it. And my attitude totally changed, which was, as long as you don't pull a fast one, if you tell the voters prior to an election, I've changed my position on an issue... And I plan to do it so you have an opportunity as a voter to say, well, I'm now going to vote against you because I think that's totally unprincipled or I'm fine with it. I'm going to vote for you. My attitude is so he changed his mind. What's the big deal? Well, and also of all the good government, quote unquote, issues out there. I mean, I one that I have absolutely no problem with is increasing legislator salaries mm-hmm. and executive salaries to a place where it's never going to be commensurate with the private sector. But you want to, you know, we're living in an expensive place and you want people to be able to support their families and you want people who would otherwise be able to make a lot of money in the private sector to consider going into public service. I think it's a in the case where public employees are getting raises or elected officials are getting raises, I think it's good political hygiene to make it take effect at the beginning of the following term. But that is, in effect, what what Baker has done, uh, you know, saying that he would take the thing after uh, after the election. Didn't a famous Cambridge City Councilor vote against the pay raise and then ended up taking it when the raise went through? I can't remember. There are rumors that while it is true that when I was a Cambridge City Councilor, it is true that yeah. I did vote against the pay raise. There's a front page story There is a scurrilous Chronicle. rumor that after having voted against it, there's some report that I may have taken it. Yeah, that's right. And uh, uh, I cannot uh, recall. Well, that's because as a Cambridge City Councilor, you were more concerned with foreign policy. Exactly. exactly. I was. <laughs> That's exactly right. Exactly. And I was actually, it's all Cambridge There were resolutions to pass. You know, by the way, this is from a guy, a guy accusing, by the way, I did not vote on the Iraq resolution. It's totally true. It was 8 nothing and an abstention. It, it turned the tide. But the I want to be clear. But said, I Everyone's Iraq, waiting to hear. That was it. This criticism is coming from a guy who wrote a piece about eating the wild turkeys for Thanksgiving. By the way, a piece that Marjorie piece. and I both loved. Yeah. My understanding, though, uh, was that they weren't, 
did we discuss this Corby Cummer or Food Guy last year or something? That because there's the, they're stringy and not very tasty, and you suggest otherwise, right? Well, we'd definitely be talking about braising rather than roasting. Oh. Um, they are uh, they are tough. Uh, a person that I talked to at Mass Wildlife said that they're very easy to overcook. So, uh, in addition to some changes in the law and some more humane collection techniques, uh, we'd also have to build up a little more cooking expertise. Because, and the reason because cooking cooking wild game is really difficult. And the law issue is I didn't know is we can't. Is a hunting prohibition or some such thing near buildings? So or? that's that's the thing. One, it is you can't you cannot fire a, a hunting gun or a crossbow, which are sometimes used in hunting, within a certain amount of feet of a street, and which is a certain, probably good policy, and a certain amount of, of feet of a building. So there's you know maybe the middle of a golf course in 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 Brookline that would qualify for <laughs> hunting, but that that would probably be for, forbidden. But it's funny because there are other parts of the state where um, there are more open spaces, so the turkeys are more subject to being hunted there, or or for that matter, being hit by speeding cars. So meanwhile yeah. in Brooklyn where the speeds are lower and, and they can't be shot. Like, you know, it's a dense area that has nevertheless become an ideal habitat for turkeys. Well, if you're a smart turkey, can happen to yeah, that's where you go. I don't use my crossbow in the city at all anymore, by the way. <laughs> I don't know when it was. Years ago, I stopped uh, okay. doing the crossbow. Okay, well, next time we're going to, Joanne, so we're going to talk about her chicken raising in the backyard. You still have chickens? I do have chickens, and you're I would never eat them. I'm a total hypocrite about them because oh. I have chicken in the refrigerator, they're but pets? I would never eat well, they're, my chickens. Because they're not they're your pets? chickens. They're pets, yeah. We eat their eggs. I mean, that's like rent for them, but they're... <laughs> oh, they're, oh. They eat them. Oh, wonderful. Okay, I guess we've taken care of that. We don't need to talk about next time you come. Good thank to you see very you much. Uh, thank you very much for coming in. Dante Ramos is a columnist for the Boston Globe. He's also the editor of the Ideas section where I read about eating the Brookline turkeys yesterday. Joanna Weiss is WGBH regular editor of Experience, a magazine published by Northeastern University. And if you go to exp-mag.com, nope. Nope. EXP Mag. Right. One EXP. Oh, there's, no da- there's no dash? Okay. EXPMag.com. They have this great interactive feature where you can walk in the shoes of immigrants from different time periods. That sounds fantastic. Cool. That sounds great. Dante and Joanne, thank you very much, uh, Joanne, for coming in and happy Thanksgiving. You too. Thank you. you. Both. Thanks. Coming thank up, you. the CIA is blaming Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman for the killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. President Trump says that assessment is premature. Charlie Senate goes over the, that and other headlines next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Bradley and Mardrigan. Theresa May's draft plan for Brexit has caused a mass Brexitus with cabinet members resigning over irrevocable frustration with the prime minister and the Brexit process. The only things British politicians across the spectrum united in is their shared disdain for May's Brexit deal. So what does all this turmoil at 10 Downing mean for the rest of us? Joining us for his take on this and other global headlines is Charlie Sennett. Charlie's a news analyst here at GBH. He also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Hello, Charlie Sennett. Hey, Jim. Hey, Marjorie. Hey, great to see you, uh, Charlie Sennett. Um, so the CIA, I believe they leaked the information that they believe the Crown Prince, uh, MBS as we call him, was up to his eye teeth in the murder of uh, dissident journalist uh, Khashoggi. But President Trump, uh, and the White House issued a statement – well, uh, the, the State Department, I should get that correct – issued a statement saying that reports indicating the U.S. government had made a final conclusion are 
inaccurate. Uh, and the president hasn't listened to the tape. So what's going on? I don't know. I mean, you, did you read the Washington Post stories? Yep. They, they were really strong. Really That's where great. it broke. Right. I mean, yeah. Washington Post broke the story. I, I have to say, I didn't come away convinced they had this smoking gun piece of information that it's definitely the crown prince. Yep. I, I, I came away thinking it's hard to believe an operation that extensive that the CIA has that much information on with some connections back to the palace that the House of Saud at the highest levels had to know. That's that's a step from saying, you know, that the crown prince himself is the one who did this. Well, aren't I, they I, in part? It's because the the phone call to Khashoggi from the brother, right? Saying you can go to the embassy and don't worry, and get your license and don't worry, you're going to be safe. That's their a primary piece of evidence. Yes, again, it's a great piece of evidence in the puzzle. And look, they are they are absolutely in this. I definitely don't want to sound like an apologist for the House of Saud. I think we have to know the answer uh, as to who murdered. Uh, Jamal Khashoggi, one of the really great independent journalists of Saudi Arabia, and as I've shared with you guys, someone who I know and mm-hmm. who I used to go and talk with when I went to Saudi Arabia, um, I don't want to try to sound like I'm peddling this lightly. I just don't, I don't see that the news stories yet have convinced me that they really have this thing cold uh, you know, on well, the Well, I guess Prince. I wondered whether we don't know the whole the whole thing. Well, it's very possible. That, that's what I figured, is that maybe they have more information that they revealed to the Washington Post, but what do I know? We should play a little bit of, uh, of sound here, that we've got uh, the president declining to comment on the CIA's conclusion that Saudi Arabia ordered the Khashoggi murder when asked by reporters on the lawn of the White House uh, before he went to California to see the uh, damage from the fires on Saturday. We also have a great ally in Saudi Arabia. They give us a lot of jobs, they give us a lot of business, a lot of economic development. They are, uh, they have been a truly spectacular ally in terms of jobs and economic development. And I also take that, you know, I'm president. I have to take a lot of things into consideration. So you know, I'm that, president. Is that a legitimate yeah. argument that, uh, <laughs> oh. that we have um, jobs and money from arms hey, deals? They're an ally, a truly spectacular ally. I mean, this is a president who now calls... Uh, Saudi Arabia, in the context of a horrific murder, a truly spectacular ally, a crucial ally, a pivotal ally, a challenging ally, an ally we need despite their often uh, going out and violating human rights. Those things could be said, but a truly spectacular ally in the context of a gruesome murder of an independent journalist who worked for the Washington Post is pretty unbelievable to hear the President of the United States say. What... What else has he? Who, who else has he said he loves? He loves Kim Jong Un, who's also right. been pretty brutal to not just journalists but anyone who dares to question anything in that realm. He's been pretty loving to Putin, who's also murdered journalists and has been very tough on them. He talks about Duterte in the Philippines like he's heroic, and he's a real petty despot who's brutalized the free press in that country. He he lionizes. Dis, uh, Al-Sisi in Egypt, who's also locked up a lot of people I know who are journalists in Egypt. We have to care about getting to the bottom of the Khashoggi murder. We have to care about finding out who did it. And we need a president who starts to get that when you start killing journalists, it's a real issue for freedom of expression around the world. And it's one of the things just, you know, at Ground Truth, we've fought long and hard uh, to fight for safety, security, and the rights of journalists all over the world and right here in America. It's a time to really focus on what is the president messaging here? 
what's he really saying when he says they're a spectacular ally, even though it's just a question of how high did the approval yeah. go on the murder of Khashoggi? You know, the interesting thing, though, well, unlike most vice presidents, uh, uh, Vice President Pence toes the Trumpian line. I mean, I meant like most vice presidents yeah. who toe the line of their boss. It's very rare that you see a departure. But on this, and maybe this is just matters of degree, it seems to me that Pence's comments about holding people responsible here are far stronger and have been far stronger than the president's. Is that, do you reach the same conclusion or I, no? I, I, I'm glad you said it. I have noticed it. I have also, I was, I was eager to ask you guys this morning, do you see... Pence starting to position himself after the election that he's playing a much more visible role. I hadn't even thought about it, actually. At the summit in Singapore, he's the one now talking to Putin. He's there with Bolton. He's been much more strident on the issue of Khashoggi. And I'm just curious, like, do you think we're going to start to see a new Pence? In what, do you think he's going to run against the no, Trump but, in 2020? But I think if something should happen to Trump, like he doesn't run, he's indicted or he is impeached... Does does Pence start to reposition himself in the second know. half of the He's, term? I, I, he seems like such an unappealing candidate, but I. Who Donald knows? Trump could never be elected president either, Marjorie. So I well, guess at we least Donald to... Trump, you see him on TV, you stop what you're doing, and you, you know, watch him. So Charlie, <laughs> can we just stay on Pence. Saudi Arabia for one second? And yes. So, assuming that the CIA makes a more compelling case in their the briefing that the president got over the phone, and I guess yep. the final thing is Tuesday tomorrow. Uh, uh, what does the United States do if, on one hand, Donald Trump doesn't want to destroy this truly spectacular uh, relationship or whatever he said, and the rest of the world is convinced that the crown prince is responsible here? What's the? How do they split this baby? You know, we've had challenging allies before who we continue to do business with. China is one of them, right? I mean, we've had others. I think what they need to do is really modulate that this is serious, that they're going to get to the bottom of this murder, and they're going to they're support... Turkey and its efforts to try to go after how exactly this happened. They're going to stand up. What does up. that mean in concrete terms? Is that I think some of it is language. I think what you can't have is this, we'll never really know. That was the other quote uh-huh. that, that Trump right, said, that's right? That's a very good point. Will yeah. anybody yeah, really right. know? It's this weaponization of doubt. We'll never know. So in the meantime, they're a spectacular ally. I would love to hear from our White House, and I think it would be smart to hear from our White House something more tough on Saudi Arabia, something that really starts to call them into check, not only on the murder of Khashoggi, but on, on, on the issue of the war that Khashoggi wrote about. The war in Yemen, which is brutal and horrific. It's the worst human rights crisis in the world right now. Where is this administration on being tougher on Saudi Arabia, forcing the ceasefire? At a minimum, it's time to readjust our posture towards Saudi Arabia. I'm not saying you break off all ties, we we do something that drastic, but you have to be messaging more clearly just the extent to which they've let us down as an ally in a region that's very volatile where we have to we have to have alliances with with uh regimes and people who are less than noble. You know, before we get to Brexit, which we both want to talk to you about, since you mentioned this East East Asia summit where uh, uh, Bolton and uh, the vice president are representing the United States. All I want to say, unless you have something else to say, if yeah. people have not seen the video of the excitement that Bolton is experiencing when Putin looks in his direction and shakes, it is like a little, it's like yeah. a six year old meeting his Tom Brady. 
It, it is so... It's bizarre. Dis, it's nauseating, actually. It is like... There's this huge, excited, childlike smile. It I is, know you want to move on, and Brexit no, okay. really, really it's matters. Okay. But there's something I really don't understand. For the better part of a half a century, conservatives defined themselves as the party that was the strongest against the Soviet I Union. I totally agree with you. They talked about the tyranny of the Soviets. They talked about the dangers of socialism. They talked about the treachery of Russia all the way through until we get, suddenly we get to Donald Trump and it all shifts on a dime and suddenly they're cozying up to Putin. They're talking about Russia. I just don't get it. I don't get how, how conservatives in America don't see how bizarre this is and don't see this as something to be, I, I would argue, really concerned about. Well, I, I mean, the obvious answer to the question is the same old tired line I recite all the time. The only thing a lot of pals stand for is re-election. Yeah. And they have decided that if Donald Trump decides to take you on in Twitter, you're not getting re-elected anything. Look at Jeff Flake. I mean, remember Jeff Flake saying, I couldn't be saying what I'm saying about the Kavanaugh nomination, even though ultimately he voted for him, if I was running for re-election. Well, Jim, An incredible moment why. of candor. But what about Bolton then? I mean, Bolton a, is a gruff bully. Who doesn't no, take that's any a, that's crap a better from anyone? That's a very good. And so, by the way, it's not a look on his face uh, like I have to be warm no, to Putin because my boss loves Putin. It's genuinely it like an excited little kid <laughs> meeting his uh, his hero. Uh, let's move to the Brexit right, situation. Right. So, is it, one what it, the, <laughs> what the, the, what is going on? Uh, allegedly, uh, May negotiated a, a horrible deal. Is that what it is? Not so good for Britain, great for the EU. Is that what the that's how deal is? Well, that's how Brexiteers would see it. So I I would say she was handed an impossible situation, which is how do you carry forth the vote, uh, which was in 2016 to decide to leave the European Union? How do you honor that as a conservative leader and hold this whole this whole parliamentary structure together. And by the way, if we think our uh, Congress gets nasty, you have got to follow British Parliament. It is like, <laughs> it is just dissing on a whole new level. The way they line up against each other, the treachery. Scream the, and yell. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's unbelievable. I was, I was watching the, the film, The Darkest Hour, the other night with one of my oh, boys. Oh, love that. And you remember the treachery he faced mm -hmm. with Chamberlain. and It's so true to the history of, of, of that country, the United Kingdom, that its parliament uh, is just filled with intrigue and guys who really plot and strategize on how to take down a prime minister like it's sport, like it's cricket. You know, this is like a test match. Sort of like Mitch McConnell did on the night that Barack Obama was sworn in in 2008, <laughs> right? When he, was, he said, how do we... But, 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 uh, uh, so... So is anyway, her, her, well, is there her, going to be a no-confidence vote and she's gone? And her then, government hangs by a thread and no-confidence vote's a distinct possibility. Another, another and what possibility. would that mean if she disappears... The, her replacement would then have to start over. And Why gotta, is there just not a second referendum? I don't understand that either. Well, so the second referendum is in the air. And honestly, it's I, I've said this for at least four or five months that I think that's where it's going to go. I think there has to be a second referendum. I don't think and the Poland country suggests it would be a different that. outcome. Is that not correct? Absolutely, it's already shifted. So, so I think there's going to be a second referendum, and I think they're going to they're going to they're going to exit the Brexit. So let's get to Jim Mass. You know, everyone's well, always... we, so. So wait a second. So what happens? I just I'm made sorry. a prediction, Jim, which I really I, heard, I know. That, I like that. <laughs> but but in the short term, 
what what happens here? She disappears. Well, and then there's, there's yet another. So there's isn't an, there a deadline? There's an hourglass of March 29th that's already been turned okay. over. That's the point at which they have to make the decision. Right now, Parliament is 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 uh, toing. To, how do you say that? Toing and froing. Is that, that, yeah, that, that's right. Like toing and froing works for us. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They're shifting all over the place, and the question is, will her government stand? And there is a possibility of. A call for elections. She is unseated in power. There is a new leadership, and they try to force through a tougher Brexit, uh, one that, they, as they would see it, is better for the British economy and not so accommodating to the European or Union. Or just calls for the second referendum you're predicting, right? Or what, what are the, the conditions that cause a prime minister to say, uh, we got to have a redo here? What has to happen? That's, I guess, I think I think that's the moment we're in. I think right now, as we march toward March 29th, as her government hangs by a thread, the question is, who's going to put something to the floor to say, we are going to have another referendum? And they'll only do it when they have the votes to push it through, right? Okay, can we move on? Yes, we can. Parliamentary intrigue doesn't grab you, Mark. Well, parliamentary intrigue does (laughs) grab me, but White House intrigue uh, grabs me a little bit more. All right, where are we going? uh, Like a lot of Americans, I'm always hoping that there will be the grown-ups and the people with principles and so forth that will surround the president to prevent anything disastrous That's getting harder and harder to believe It's getting harder and harder to believe. And uh, many people have criticized Jim Mattis, uh, the defense secretary, for going down to the uh, border troops and comparing – this was really weird – Comparing the troops being there to in the Woodrow Wilson administration when that guy Pancho Villa we used to see in the Mexican <laughs> uh, the Mexican uh, villain in the westerns, you know, when he was attacking those border towns and burning down their houses and stuff. Mattis said, you know, he compared this doing nothing by the troops to fighting off Pancho Villa a hundred years ago. If you're if you're, Villa? Ta- I'm sorry. If you're yeah, Villa, Pancho Villa and if you're talking about Pancho Villa, he was leading a resistance movement, a movement of of Mexican nationalism, of charging He's a forward. Revolutionary, right? Yeah. yeah. There's, there's nothing like that. Violent. There's a bunch of poor people, mostly women and children, who are stragglers, who are making their way to the border and who it it was a political ploy to send those troops and Mattis that Mattis played into it as a military man is troubling. It's sad because I've, I am with you and always thinking of Jim Mattis as one of those people who was one of the last adults in the room. And we know that they fight like cats and dogs and they're having it out all the time, but it looks like on this issue, he just caved to the politics of the moment. And that's really what it was. Have you heard Donald Trump or Fox News, for that matter, talk much about the caravan no, the since best, the election? The best no. thing are the graphics that go up on CNN where they have the number of mentions by the president and Fox News leading up to November 6th, the week before, right. and the number of mentions on right. Fox News and by the president since November 6th, which lends total credence to the notion exactly. that it was all about uh, ginning up the base for November 6th and not about the uh, – this was politics. The caravan at all. Yeah. Okay. I don't, do we have time really quickly for Netanyahu? About 30 seconds. Yeah, we have about 30 seconds. Okay. What's going on with we Netanyahu? We can do Netanyahu in, in 30 seconds. Yeah, He's also quick. hanging by a thread. Yeah. One vote in the Knesset. There's 120 members in the Knesset. He now has a majority government by one vote. That means everyone can hold him hostage. That means the far right in Israel is going to say to Netanyahu, anything they don't like, they can threaten to back out and his government will collapse. So he's on a tightrope right now, and the conservatives know it, and they're starting to make a play. Israel's moving further and further to the right. And what does that mean for us? 
I think for us, there was a really interesting piece in the New York Times, and it's something we've talked about, which was the sort of the, the Kushner aspects of the Trump administration, which is so pro-Israel. Is that good for America? Is that good for Jews in America? And the divisions within Judaism in America itself are really deep. We've talked about this yeah. around the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem, right? I think we're going to see more and more of that play out. I think what does it mean for America? It means that there's a real stress crack around our own sense of what it is to support Israel, what it is to be a good ally to Israel, and how do you challenge them. As they move further and further to the right, it gets more and more unconscionable. I think most Americans who've ever visited the Holy Land would agree. When you go there and you see it on the ground, you're struck by by the need for, for peace, the need for a Palestinian state, the need for the for the for the people to actually go forward on the promises that have been made and laid out by the leaders before them. Charlie, thank you very much. Charlie, thanks as always. Charlie thank joins us every week. He's a news analyst here at WGBH, where he also has up the Ground Truth Project. Coming up, Bob Thompson is here to go over the latest TV headlines, developments. He's got a lot of great stories. He's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. noon on today's Boston Public Radio. While we still haven't figured out how bikes, cars, and pedestrians can cohabit, Boston, are you ready to bring scooters into the mix? We'll open the lines and ask you. Reporter A.C. Thompson has been investigating the rise of white supremacy in America. We'll talk to him about his latest frontline documentary, which looks at how a neo-Nazi group is actively using U.S. military to find recruits and encouraging lone wolf terrorists using Tim McVeigh as their model. From there, it's time for All Revved Up with the Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. We'll ask them what's next for the Catholic Church now that the Vatican has thwarted U.S. bishops' pursuit to hold their church accountable for a sex abuse crisis. From there, TV Bob Thompson joins us for the best and worst TV moments of the week, and we wrap things up with poet Richard Blanco and another edition of Village Voice. He'll teach us about this poetry format that rivals a soliloquy. All that is next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Hello again, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. So last week we were talking about hologram entertainment with Jared, and now Prince thought the idea of being brought back from the dead that way was diabolical. But apparently his estate had no objection to the music legend being brought back to life by way of Blackish to mark their 100th episode. The sitcom did a full tribute to Prince, which focuses on the show's twins, who, to their parents' dismay, don't know who Prince is. <laughs> you two really don't know who Prince is. That's worse than Kanye saying slavery was a choice. This is your fault. What? Why didn't you teach my about Prince? Don't put this on me. I am the math and science parent. I did my job. You 
have fallen in the rankings. What? You rank us? Yes, child formerly known as three. <laughs> and for you to get that reference, you are going to learn about Prince the way that Junior and Zoe did. Family meeting! Oh, my God. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to teach these awful kids about Prince. Amen. Do you know why damn near the entire black community loved a man who wore heels and assless pants? <laughs> that booty. It's because in his 40-year career, he won eight Grammys, six American Music Awards, a Golden Globe, an Oscar, and sold over a hundred million albums. A hundred million. Don't forget those assless pants, though. Joining us online to talk about this and other TV developments is Bob Thompson. Bob's professor and the founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse. Hey, Bob. Hey, how are you guys? Excellent. Well, fine, Bob Thompson. I didn't know about the pants myself, but you learn <laughs> something every day. So is this by chance your best? It is. And I know I've given Blackish the best uh, uh, many times. Uh, this is a good old-fashioned, old-school sitcom, but it does, it did uh, uh, police shooting episodes, it did N-word episodes, it did a great episode after the Trump administration, but it can also do all of these fun and uh, uh, frivolous ones. And even in that, just, I don't know, what was that clip, 90 seconds or whatever? Yeah. There was a lot in that. I'm the math and science uh, uh, parent. Uh, you have now been demoted to the child formerly known yes, as sir. third. I mean, <laughs> there, there, were, there were nine really great lines in that that uh, uh, brief thing. And, of course, throughout the episode, uh, every single member of the cast at some point gets dressed up as Prince and performs uh, 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 one of his songs. Fortunately, Megyn Kelly was not a guest star. You know, I I read a decent amount about this, and people were, uh, a number of commentators were surprised that uh, the estate even gave permission for it. But I think I read that one of the characters' father was Prince's official photographer or some such thing zoe i think is 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 uh the father is his, oh, was I, his pho- I think that's that i think that's true uh, so i don't know if that facilitated it but people were surprised that uh they were as willing to uh, have his work uh, on the show but obviously it's... it was a really really fun episode and uh if anybody is ever in the mood to uh uh binge for 50 hours uh, uh the first hundred episodes of blackish would be a fine way to do it by the way i Hadn't watched it until you started raving about it. It really, it is really great. Yeah, I mean, it is show. a great television show. And uh, it's so, on the network. I mean, it, yeah. It's just a sitcom. It's not any of this fancy stuff that we talk mm-hmm. about uh, uh, every week. But I think it proves how viable that old-fashioned format can still be. So what's the worst there, Bob Thompson? Well, this is, I'm going to call it the worst, but uh, I, I secretly am harboring best as well. Uh, USA announced that it's bringing back uh, what's arguably the most evil reality show ever made, Temptation Island. And if you remember, back in uh, 2000, this went from 2001 to 2003 on Fox, and it's when reality show was trying all of these different genetic mutations. And Temptation Island was how you got, you got four couples who were beginning to question the future of their relationship. So in order to test how firm it was, they go on to this uh, island. The men go off to one side, the women to the other side. And on each side of the island are people selected especially for them to tempt them away from uh, uh, the people they are, uh, they are with. Um, just absolutely shamelessly uh, uh, exploitative. 
Um, and now USA Network is bringing it back. I do have to give full disclosure, however. When that f- show first came on, I watched every single second of it. <laughs> By the way, this is the was Mark Wahlberg? Yeah. That, that was him, yes? Yes. Oh, good point. So Mark Wahlberg was the host of this, this horrid little oddment. <laughs> um, but then he gets into fancy Mr. PBS Antiques Roadshow uh, uh, thing. But now he's coming back to Temptation Island. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, we have a nice little clip from this. This is from the original Temptation Island, not the reboot. Oh, goody. (laughs) One contestant talks about how he feels knowing that the woman he was interested in ended up partnering with somebody else. It was Catherine on the beach with... uh... I believe his name is Brian. And uh, they were having an intimate moment. What are you feeling? I mean, my heart's pounding. I'm feeling a little... I mean, let down isn't the right word. It's just a little concerned. It makes me feel, you know, bad to see some dude, you know, working my chick, because I don't like that at all. You know? I mean, I'm a man. I can't tell you how many times people have said on our show here that they were upset when they saw some dude working their chick there, Bob. So it's such a tired old line for Boston Public Radio. I know. It's it's so Jim and Marjorie. (laughs) I I remember uh, uh, after the the last episode of this, I was on the uh, Today Show with uh, uh, Katie Couric back in those olden days. And she was as into Temptation Island uh, uh, as I was. Um, but I, I, I crossed the line. I compared the final episode to the last scene of Casablanca, and she was having none of that. <laughs> We're talking about Thompson, our TV guy. Okay, before we talk about the Clinton affair, I'm going to play a clip. Well, I'm not, but John is from, the, from A&E's new uh, docu-series uh, because I want to get us all in the mood here. Uh, Monica Lewinsky talked about participating in, in this movie in a Vanity Fair piece she wrote, and here she is talking about the gifts Clinton gave her in the early stages of their relationship. Bill gave me this box which had a hat pin and he said because you know you always look so cute in hats or you and your hat something like that and then he gave me this really beautiful copy of Leaves of Grass. It was a very meaningful present to me. It's an intimate book that you don't just give lightly. Whatever had been nagging in me of, like, is what I'm feeling real? Is that there? Whatever those insecurities were, they kind of vanished in some ways with him having given me this gift. Oh, man. Okay, that was Monica Lewinsky. Apparently Paula Jones also makes an appearance in this uh, docuseries. So what's the verdict? Well, it's uh, going to be six and a half hours long. Um, uh, it, it debuted uh, uh, last night. Uh, this is on A&E. And the title itself is notable because uh, we always used to refer to this, and I have to admit I was guilty of this as well, as the Lewinsky great scandal. Great point. That's a great point. Go ahead. And this is called The Clinton Affair. So even if you don't watch a second of this, uh, there has been some kind of uh, uh, vindication and some kind of statement made uh, in the very title of the show itself. Yeah, I didn't read the Vanity Fair piece, Marjorie. Did you? Uh, uh, yeah, but I, it was basically just talking about how she went back and forth. If she, I don't, there was about participating like, in the series. Yes, about participating in the series, and it had some other things in there too. But you know, it's really interesting how the Me Too uh, moment and the Times Up moment has caught Bill Clinton. 
the review that I read of this piece talked about how he was so surprised when he was hammered running around the country uh, promoting the novel he'd written with James Patterson to to be pressed on these questions about Lewinsky. And I think that's, you know, it's a great point, Bob. It kind of comes in the context of this moment in our history when we're finally, powerful men are finally being held to account, at least some of them. Yeah, I mean, this is the the timing. Obviously, is so perfect for the the whole uh, this story, which is t- uh, twenty years old, um, needs to be completely reframed in the raised consciousness that we uh, uh, that we have now. And I'm not sure that this six and a half hours quite does that. Uh, it, it's a perfectly serviceable uh, documentary. I think it makes a lot of good points. I like the statement made in the uh, uh, in its title. Um, uh, but I'm not sure this goes as far as the, we, we always talk about the great 10 part OJ Simpson documentary that really repositioned that in the, uh, new era history, constantly rethinking itself. Um, I, I'm not sure this is quite on that, uh, uh level, but it, it's certainly worth looking at. Keep in mind for, uh, uh, timing, the Clintons themselves, forget the book tour where he was asked the tough, que- the tough and necessary questions about me too how about the fact that the two of them he and hillary clinton are going on their own tour which is going to end up in boston at some point i think in april am i not right about that i don't know when it arrives yeah but i'm i'm wondering i'm really curious about how well it's gonna it's gonna do by the way the, the the i just looked it up the headline of the piece in vanity fair is who gets to live in victimville why I participated in a new docu-series on the Clinton affair. And there's a beautiful picture of Monica Lewinsky, and then she explains uh, why she did it. And for the three people who have not been following, she's become a really important spokesperson on a lot of really important issues, including bullying and that sort of stuff. Well, you know, there was so much hostility toward her at at the time. And as we said a million times, organized feminism, the women's movement, disgraced itself by defending Clinton and not defending her. Except for you, by the way, in your column in the Boston Herald. Well, thank you. I wasn't the only one, but there weren't many. But the point is, um, you know, I think people are looking back now and saying, wait a minute. Wait a minute. She was 22. He was the president of the United States. I mean, they're West, worst this. power differential, arguably, ever. And what did Hillary Clinton say in a recent interview? It was not abusive. It was a consensual, not it was abusive a consensual relationship. Yeah, yeah. A, a fair. yeah both, both of them, I think, have so both, – both Clintons had so poorly handled their – I mean, they obviously had to respond to this in this day, um, and I think they both of them did it pretty poorly. Yeah. We're talking to Bob Thompson, our and uh, she TV was guy. One last thing. She, yeah. she was the butt of jokes on late-night TV, and she was just turned into this. Well, look how she has been treated in the intervening years, and look how he has been treated until six months ago in the interview. The, was he not the most in-demand? Democratic speaker in the United States, if until not now. any kind of, until, until me too, exactly. And, and interestingly enough, uh, he was not in demand by uh, in candidates running for office exactly. in, the, in the midterms. Okay. By the way, very, very quickly, everybody knows Bill Clinton played saxophone on the Arsenio Hall of course. show. On that very same show, Hillary comes out halfway through the episode. And uh, it is very instructive to go back and listen to uh, Why? I don't uh, remember uh, Hillary that. because she makes uh, a reference uh, to Jennifer Flowers, for example. Uh, uh, anyway, that, that, really? uh, there's a lot of that story left to be told. We're talking to Bob Thompson. Okay, uh, Bob Thompson, let's talk uh, now about this Enemies on Showtime. This sounds fascinating. 
Yeah, if you're into documentaries and docudramas, last night was a big night because the Clinton Affair debuted on A&E, the first of uh, uh, three parts, six and a half hours. And Showtime, four episodes, uh, Enemies, The President, Justice, and the FBI. Episode one was Nixon and Watergate. Uh, Episode two will be Iran-Contra. Episode three, uh, uh, the Clintons. And part four, the expanded 97 minutes uh, about uh, uh, Trump, Comey, and all of the rest of it. Ooh, ooh, this is going to be terrific. But, you know, didn't one of the points that they made is that the perspective here is from the FBI, which is not usually the perspective we get on a lot of these uh, uh, moments in history? Right. It, it's, this is specifically trying to look at the intersection between the president, the Justice Department, and the intelligence community, the FBI. Um, and so far, the first episode about Watergate, I mean, th- this is real estate that has been hacked over so many different times that uh, uh, I- I'm not sure there were any terribly new um, uh, uh, insights but for a lot of people for whom this is news it was a was a consumable way of getting a digest of it i wonder how i mean uh, part of the problem with the whatever is episode four on trump is things change every single day needless to say and it becomes outdated pretty quickly no well i'm sure they have got uh that tape still in the editing machine waiting because i my guess is the way that episode looks right now is not what's ultimately going to air for the very reason that you point out and one of the things I'm looking forward to is that scene. Remember when uh, Jim Comey comes rushing down to John Ashcroft, then the Attorney General, in the hospital bed. Yes, when yeah. he's in the hospital bed, and, and they want to make sure that they're um, they're upset about the uh, surveillance that the uh, Bush wanted to put into power into place rather after 9/11. The warrantless stuff was it not? Am I right about that? Uh, I think? Yeah, it was. It was just more surveillance of, of citizens. I don't know what the exact title of it was. In any case, it talks about how Ashcroft's wife turns out to be the big hero in that scene, so I'm anxious to see that because I certainly didn't know that. Nor did I. Okay, Bob Thompson, we all remember this story. This was, it, this was when these two convicted murderers escaped from this uh, maximum security prison aided by a woman employee with whom at least one of them was having uh, sex. She was their supervisor in the prison tailor shop. So that actually happened. Now we have... A TV show about it. Escape from Donna Another Showtime show, another one that debuted uh, last night. This is seven episodes. Now, this is not a documentary. This is a docudrama, or that's what we used to call them. It's a, uh, got actors, and it's uh, 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 scripted. Uh, Benicio Del Toro and uh, P- uh, Patricia Arquette, really, really uh, uh, good in this. This first hour is, so far, I think, my favorite docudrama of all time. It, no, it made really? me forget what's actually going to happen, but... It is shot, and I've lived now over half my life in upstate New York, New York, the cold November of the soul. And the first 12 minutes of this, uh, you know, watching in the morning as the snowplow plows your driveway in so you can't get out. The, the, the cold, dark, uh, gothic sort of look of these beautiful mountains. He managed to shoot at the correctional facility. Ben Stiller, by the way, who's the director. I know. Um, uh, so the whole the whole thing gets this northern New York, upstate Gothic kind of thing, just so beautifully. If if I didn't watch past the first twelve minutes when the credits quit rolling, uh, I would have loved this show. So uh, when I read that it was Ben Stiller, I looked it up to make sure it was the Ben Stiller. Has he ever <laughs> right, done not anything? Another Ben Stiller. Has he ever done anything like this? 
I don't think he's ever done anything like this. Um, I don't just mean but, about a prison he's thing. Sure doing but, it well so far. But does he do serious? I mean, he's the director. Yes. Does he do yes. serious work? Before? Oh, I should know this. He's probably done some serious directing uh, stuff. We know him, obviously, more for his comedy, but uh, I'm going to have to defer on that question. But uh, this is really, and there's it's seven episodes, so it is taking its time telling mm-hmm. the story. By the end of the first episode, you forget that this is, in fact, based on a, you know, the story that, of course, we all, uh, uh, that we all know. We're talking to Bob Thompson. So, Bob, what are we watching this? Well, we're going to watch virtually everything you've mentioned so far. But what is uh, on your what-to-watch list? Okay, very quickly, my unofficial what-to-watch is uh, AMC is doing a six-part, but you can watch it all tonight, tomorrow, and Wednesday, uh, The Little Drummer Girl. If you miss The Americans and you miss uh, uh, Homeland, uh, this is pretty good. But I suppose I have to also say what I always say this time of year, um, the Macy's Parade and the National Dog Show. Oh, the dog uh, show. My favorite. (laughs) Yeah, I've been meaning to ask you guys, have you guys ever seen that movie, Best of Show? You're joking, of course, right? (laughs) Of course. Okay, yes. I didn't know. Okay, fine. So here is a clip from, this is John le Carre, right? Am I not right? Yes, I am. Exactly. And and kind of an old novel. I think it's back from uh, 83. So here's a clip from uh, Little Drummer Girl. Uh, Israeli spymaster Martin Kurtz, played by Michael Shannon. Israeli operative Gadi Becker, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, played by Alexander Skarsgård. Oh, is he the guy from Big Little Lies? Is he not the husband? Right. Right. Discuss whether to recruit the titular character, Charlie, into their operation. Here it is. Call it now, Gadi. Right now. Do we let it play or do we pull her out? She doesn't realize how far this will go. Her survival depends on her ignorance. You know that. A girl like Charlie comes along once in a lifetime. That heart, that unfocused rage, that demands faith now, not direction. Hey, that sounds pretty good to me so far. And you know, and you know what's great? It's going to be uh, six hours. You, you can't stream it. You have to watch it. What do you that. mean you can't stream it? It's on AMC. Oh, you mean it's not like a Netflix kind can. of thing? Can you, Bob? You have to wait week to week, right? Yeah, it's uh, but you're going to get to get through it pretty quick because it starts tonight and does two episodes and two more tomorrow and uh, Wednesday you'll be finished. So oh. uh, before oh. you put the turkey in the oven, this can be done. Oh, I hate. I thought it was going to be once a week. I'm so. I, it's too well, by much. the way, in light of the fact that I'm never putting the turkey in the oven, <laughs> I have plenty of time. So one of our colleagues here, Tori, looked up. He's directed. This is Ben Stiller. Two Zoolanders, which is, or beyond, oh, I haven't seen the second one. The first one's so funny. Well, those can't are definitely breathe. comedies. Secret You're Life of Walter Mitty, Tropic Thunder, I have no idea what that is. The Cable Guy, Reality Bites, and Elvis Stories, I have no idea what that is either. But it sounds like this may be his first serious kind of plunge thing. So, yeah, this is kind of a departure. Getting back to the parade for a second, I can't, could not believe this was true, and I went back and looked at my DVD, and it is. Uh, you know who was still hosting the Macy's Day Parade last Thanksgiving? Dick Clark. Matt Lauer. Was what? Still on the, no. He, he hosted, I, I think Thanksgiving was November 23rd. He got fired November 29th. It, it shows how this time warp of the news cycle is happening. Wow. Um, to think that just last, th- last Thanksgiving, Matt Lauer was next to Savannah Guthrie talking about balloons. That is really wow. unbelievable. I, 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 still, I, I think I must have gotten that data wrong, but I went back and looked at the tape, and there he was. Wow. 
It does seem like it does seem like that was a million years ago, doesn't Boy, it? Well, whatever happened to him? Whatever happened to all these guys? I don't we'll know. talk about that sometime. Well, luckily, hey, Bob, thank you. Question: Where in the world is Matt Lauer? Has taken on a whole new meeting. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, at least he's got a nice salary to sustain him. I, he was probably making a good piece of change there. At, at, on, yeah, on but today. he probably also can't go out of his house for good reason, I would argue. Yeah. But that's, again, well, we'll discuss that some other time. Sunglasses. In any case, Bob Thompson, thanks so much. Talk to you next week. Thank you, Bob. Happy Let's Thanksgiving, you. by the way. You too. Bob Thompson joins us every week. He's the founder and director of the Blair Center for TV and Popular Culture and a trustee professor of TV and popular culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse. So he made fun of us because I guess we've mentioned Best in Show like a thousand times to him. Is that what it must be? By the way, we don't make many movie recommendations here, but in light of the fact we were talking with somebody last week, I can't even remember who we were talking to, about Best in Show, about uh, the, the, oh, Emily, the dog show on Thanksgiving. If you want to have a movie where there's not one line, I know you're all sick of us saying it too, but I'll say it again. There's not one single line in Best in Show, Christopher Guest's great movie, that is not perfect. It is a perfect, perfect movie. Where's the busy bee? (laughs) And uh, actually, it's not funny unless you see it. So check it out. Coming up, a new documentary looks at how a new generation of self-described Nazis are tapping into the United States military to find recruits. That conversation is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And the Tree of Life shooting, which left 11 Jewish worshipers dead, is considered the most fatal anti-Semitic attack in American history. And while it rattled the nation and sent shockwaves beyond the U.S., it probably did not come as a shock to A.C. Thompson. He's been reporting on white supremacist movements, and his latest documentary exposes a neo-Nazi group that's using the U.S. military to fortify their cause, either by finding recruits within the military or sending them to enlist in order to get the training that they need. It's called Documenting Hate, New American Nazis. It's a collaboration between ProPublica and Frontline. You can catch it tomorrow night, and you should, on WGBH2 at 9 o'clock, followed by his other documentary, Documenting documenting Hate, Charlottesville. A.C. Thompson is a reporter of ProPublica. A.C., it's great to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. Well, I said when A.C. came in... this took a lot of courage to do a lot of this reporting because you were in some very scary situations, so commendable uh, reporting on this. We talked a lot about white supremacy, but I did not know anything about Adam Waffen. Uh, what is it? And just tell us. So in German, the word means uh, nuclear weapons, atomic weapons. And the Adam Waffen Division is a relatively new group that started in about 2015. It was founded by a Florida Army National Guardsman. And basically, he was hanging out online on a fascist forum called Iron March. And he said, hey, I'm thinking about starting this group. It's going to be militant. It's going to be armed. It's going to be serious. If you want to get involved, join me. And there were two men from Massachusetts who joined up. And we know that since then, you know, somewhere between 60 and 100 people from around the country have joined the group. Their aims are race war now, overthrow the U.S. government, collapse the state, and then impose a sort of fascist regime afterwards. And since they started, we know at least five homicides have been linked to the group. You know, one of the things you you, uh, say about them is that they are urging lone wolf uh, action, to use a term that's become even... 
I mean, so much a part of the nomenclature these days. But you make the point that those who we consider lone wolves, Tim McVeigh probably being the highest profile one, really aren't lone wolves when when they're being urged to go do that by an organized movement. I mean, is that did I accurately state? Where you're going there, where you were that's, going? That's exactly it. And let me give you let me give you an example. In 2012, a former former uh, army soldier turned white supremacist named Wade Page walked into a Sikh temple, a Sikh temple in Wisconsin. He murdered six people, massacred them. When the FBI went and investigated all of his friends in the white power movement, they said, "Oh, we're so surprised that he did this. Like, it's shocking." But actually, it's not shocking at all. This is a movement that uh, preaches racial holy war. This is a neo-Nazi movement. They had spent years talking about acts of violence, plotting acts of violence, dreaming of acts of violence. And then when somebody went out and committed it, it had sprung from that firmament, from that terrain that they were inhabiting. Did Pittsburgh spring from that firmament? We, we absolutely believe so. And our reporting that we've been doing in recent days indicates that Robert Bowers, the accused synagogue shooter, was in touch with people in the in the Adam Waffen milieu who were associated and linked to the group. Well, you talk about, too, although there's 60 to 80 members, there's a lot of wannabe members who are, like, floating on the outside of this. Right. So it's bigger than just that, that group of people. What do you call them, initiates? Is initiates, that what initiates? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but you also talk about the fact that law enforcement uh, – seems not to be directing the attention that it should on these groups. You know, that's that's the concern. And we know that the federal government, there have been some really strong and aggressive federal prosecutions. So we know that they wrapped up eight members of a white power gang called the Rise Above Movement that I've been reporting on. But we also have concern on my reporting team because what happened with Adam Waffen is the initial incident that brought them to the attention of the authorities was their founder, the Florida National Guardsman, Brandon Russell, and another co-founder of the group, early member of the group, named Devin Russell or uh, Devin Arthur's, were arrested in a townhouse. In the latter kid's a teenager, by right, the way, at eighteen this time. years old. Yeah. And that's to, a good thing to know is most of these people are eighteen to thirty mm. white males. But so they get arrested in Tampa, Florida, middle of two thousand seventeen. Uh, Devin has decided he's leaving the group apparently, and tells the police, "I've just murdered two of my neo-Nazi roommates," and he has apparently just shot them to death. So there's two dead bodies in the house. Brandon says, hey, uh, cops, uh, I have a bunch of explosives in a cooler in the garage, so be careful. And I use it to power model rockets. That's all. (laughs) They go into the house. They find radioactive materials. They find all different kinds of explosives. They find pipe bomb parts. Uh, They find the same stuff that Tim McVeigh used to blow up Oklahoma City. And they also find terrorist manuals, Mein Kampf, the Turner Diaries, all the sort of stuff that you would use if you were a white supremacist terrorist. Devin, the the guy who allegedly did the homicides, they wrapped him up immediately and charged him and arrested him. But Brandon, they let him go. And the next morning, he went and bought two new rifles, loaded up the car with a thousand rounds of ammunition, ski masks, body armor, binoculars fatigues and drove off to the Florida Keys. And luckily, uh, the police were, the FBI changed their mind. They said, oh, actually, maybe he is a domestic terrorist. Let's let's wrap the guy up. Uh, and so local police were able to stop anything uh, bad from happening. 
but we may well have prevented another terror attack. And I give you that example because it sort of suggests that law enforcement, when they went into that apartment, did not fully comprehend what they were looking at. Uh, there's a woman from the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center who is also talking about the effort she's taken, a lot of them futilely apparently, uh, to tell the military of possible neo-Nazis working there. Let's hear from Heidi Byrick. We presented uh, the military and committees in Congress, like the Armed Services Committees, with 130 profiles off of the National Socialist Movement's like equivalent of Facebook, this thing called New Saxon. Nazi Facebook. Exactly, Nazi Facebook. And we keep sending stuff to the military, like examples of people saying, yeah, you should look at this guy. He looks like he might be in violation. And, you know, most of the time we never even hear anything back from them. You know, there's a certain obvious irony here that we're obsessed with terrorists from uh, other countries outside the United States and how do you explain this, that, that, that her efforts to warn the military? You know, so what the military says to us is they say, look, we have a no-tolerance policy. You cannot be involved in white supremacist groups and be in the armed forces. We, if we find that out, you get booted or you get severely disciplined. Um, but they also say, look, we've only had 27 reports of this type of activity in the last five years. And experts like Heidi will say that sounds like a very low number. That does not sound like they're doing a thorough job of rooting these people out because there's about 1.2 million active duty service members and about 800,000 National uh, Guard and Reserves. I can tell you from my own reporting, I have found more, more than 27 people associated with the military in these movements, either current or former military. And and. The person that you also interviewed that I thought was terrific is this Kathleen Bailu. Am I pronouncing that Baloo. correctly? Bailu. Sorry. She talks about how the history of white power movements, she's from the University of Chicago, and how the membership of white power groups uh, rises after the return of combat veterans. And I, we're going to play her sound in a second. But I, when I heard that, I thought the military is one of the most racially mixed you know, places in, in America. And... I found that particularly discouraging. You could be surrounded by your white guy, you're 20 years old, but you've got black guys and Latino guys and Asian guys, and yet you get you gravitate in some cases toward white supremacy? Right. It's a, it's a great point, and I think that's a, a really good point to make. Look, my dad served in the U.S. Army. My grandfather served in the U.S. Army. Most of the men in my family have been in the armed forces, and they'll say it's an incredibly diverse workforce Most of the people there are wonderful, wonderful people. But there seems to be this persistent, hardcore of folks that get radicalized within the military and come out and join these groups. And then they play an outsized role in these groups. Well, let's play the sound where she's talking about this. uh, Kathleen Ballou from the University of Chicago. One thing to understand is that throughout American history, there's always a correlation between the aftermath of warfare and this kind of vigilante and revolutionary white power violence. So if you look, for instance, at the surges in Ku Klux Klan membership, they align more consistently with the return of veterans from combat and the aftermath of war than they do with anti-immigration, populism, economic hardship, or any of the other factors that historians have typically used to explain them. We're talking to A.C. Thompson, who's behind this documentary. It'll air tomorrow night on Channel 2. It's called Documenting Hate, New American Nazis. 
How do you, without giving away trade secrets, obviously, one of the things I'm amazed by as this documentary continues is how you're able to identify so many of these people, despite the fact that obviously I assume they have screen names. Well, you list what some of the screen names are. They're wearing masks in the videos. How do you do that? What what do you do that allows you to, and then you confront some of them, I guess is, we'll talk about that in a second. How do you do that? Well, I- you know, it's a it's a variety of investigative reporting techniques. I'll tell you one thing, though, that's been interesting for me is I'm a person that really didn't like and is not a big fan of social media. And in the last two years, I've had to really understand it more than I ever did because that is the milieu. That is the natural habitat for so many of these characters. They're all conversing with one, or one another online. They're, they're dropping tips about their identity online. They're sharing clues about who they are. And if you're not in that sort of world, then you miss them. And so I've had to become more uh, steeped in that that universe than I was. So you not only are steeped in the universe, you physically visited the universe. Uh, Tell us about this. uh, Rape uh, is this uh, character's name. Tell us about a little bit about him and then your finding him and going to talk to him, which in an incredible encounter, I have to say. Uh, but describe it to us. Yes, yeah, so the, the current leader of Adam Waffen is a guy named John Cameron Denton, his, and his online handle is Rape, which gives you a sort of sense of what this movement is like at this point. And he lives uh, outside of Houston, Texas, and I had identified him and had a pretty good idea of where he lived, but not an exact address. I heard that he would be at this uh, underground, extreme heavy metal festival called Destroying Texas in Houston. It seemed like a fun event, actually, when you, when you, (laughs) I'll tell you, but go ahead. Yeah. And I said, I said, we have to go there. We have to, we have to show up because that's the only place I'm going to be able to find him. I can't get a really good address. And our team showed up and within the first three minutes of being there, spotted him. And I'm like texting back to my colleagues at the office, uh, back in, in California where my, my office is saying like, Hey, it, I just took a picture of the guy. Is this the right guy? I, I can't believe it's this easy to first just three minutes there, that we yeah. found him. And uh, it was the right guy. And uh, he was with several other members of the group. So we went up and chatted. But unfortunately, they didn't really want to talk. But, but there's yeah. more to it. I, 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 you said, I, I don't remember if it was yeah. just in your narration or if you're talking to one of your coworkers. One expects a certain something from the leader of this neo-Nazi group and particularly one whose screen name or whatever he goes by is rape. And I was actually shocked, and I think you were too, by his timidity. And, and I mean, can you describe that right. encounter a little bit? So full disclosure, I went into this situation with the belief that my director was trying to get me beat up. And I thought that might happen. I thought like, oh, this is going to be great TV, but not very good for my, my life. <laughs> Uh, and so we went in there, and the members of this group that we were meeting with at that time, that we confronted at that time, Rape and his colleagues, they're not big, burly, gnarly guys. They're kind of small and somewhat dweebish, I would say. And they were just kind of hostile and seething, but they weren't. They didn't want to get into a physical altercation. And I kind of realized that in some ways this is this new movement. They spend a lot of time online. They're not like Aryan brother prison gang kind of guys. They're not like skinheads who are going to go out and get in a big brawl. They're going to plot their moment and pick their moment. And then they're going to do something 
crazy. So tell us uh, about uh, uh, James Mason, who apparently with his book Siege was the inspiration for a lot of this stuff. What is he in his late 60s or early 70s? You got it. Okay, you start, you mentioned him early on, and I'm saying to myself as I'm watching the documentary, God, I wish AC would get to meet this guy, but obviously that's not going to happen. Well, lo and behold, it does happen. Where's it, Denver? Is that where it is? Right. So you're looking for this uh, guy, and ultimately he finds you and says, I want to talk. Before you describe the encounter, we have a little sound from it too. Describe him and his history a little bit, if you can, and what Siege is about. The the thing that's fascinating about James Mason and disturbing is that basically he took the most aggressive elements of leftist uh, guerrilla movements from the, the 60s and 70s, and he mashed them up with Nazi movements. So he saw the Viet Cong having success in the Vietnam War, and he said, oh. That's a good idea. He saw the weather underground. He said, oh, I like what they're doing with bombings. That's interesting. And his sort of strategy became, hey, we're not going to convert people to fascism through politics, through propaganda, through lobbying, through any of that stuff. It's got to be terrorism, assassination, random acts of violence, bring the chaos on. And that is his ideology. So you encounter him in Denver. We just have a little piece of... He worked uh, at Kmart. Yeah, yeah. Well, they got to have jobs. I mean, these I guess, guys have to have jobs. It, it just seemed the, the department, I mean, the apartment where you interviewed him seemed very depressing. He seemed very depressing. The whole thing was very depressing. Let's hear him a little bit and then we can fill this out. This is uh, Mason, as I said, he's sort of the ideological forefather of Adam Waffen. On In this particular moment, he's talking about uh, the president of the United States and what it would really mean to make America great again. After decades of railing against the government, Mason says Trump is giving him hope. As Trump says, and he has it printed right across the front of his hat, make America great again. In order to make America great again, you'd have to make America white again. Okay. It's interesting. We're headed for interesting times. Now, you ask him what he thought about Charlottesville. What did he say? Yeah, he said, uh, you know, I asked him about James Fields, the man who's accused Mm. of driving his car into the, the crowd of people in Charlottesville and killing Heather Heyer. And he said, guy's a hero. He's like, I feel, feel terrible he's going to, to prison. Guy's a hero. Said the same thing about Tim McVeigh. Uh, you know, basically you could throw out any person in that milieu who's done some horrible crime on behalf of white supremacy. And he'd say, great, right on. You know, but he, he seemed, uh, correct me if I'm, uh, I'm wrong, but his whole line about this, what I assume trying to protect himself legally was that I don't give orders, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, and you'll correct me, I see if I have to, you have to amend it a little bit. Uh, uh, but if I'm an inspiration for this, uh, you know, right on. Was that not you've his basic it. message? You've, you've got it. And I think part of that being coy was, uh, yes, covering for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think part of it is that he feels like, let's put this message out there and see who, who adopts it. And so do these 18 and 20 and 22-year-olds... Did they did they visit him? Yeah. Did they just they do visit him. They yeah. have an audience with Mason. Yeah, when we saw him, some of them had just come to town and and this will this will stick with you guys. They had gone to the house in Denver where radio show host Alan Berg was murdered mm-hmm. by neo-Nazis and they took pictures of themselves oh, there uh, sort of gleefully enjoying that spot. Why do you think he wanted to talk to you? Yeah, it's a good question. And we really wrestled with this because, look, uh, generally we haven't given these guys the microphone. We generally have not given them the platform to say, hey, I'm a crazy racist and this is why you should uh, believe in my crazy racist cause. In this case, 
we felt like what he's saying is important for people to understand. He's not saying, I want to change the world through uh, posters. I don't want to change the world through lobbying or electing an official. I want to change the world through violence. And we want people to hear that. Why did he speak to us? That was tough because I think at a certain level he was using us still to get his message out. And I think that's part of it. Well, you spoke to some other people, too, who were in shadow and had their voices uh, changed so people couldn't identify their voices. Tell us about uh, who those people were. Right. So these are former members of the group. And honestly, the thing that they're most worried about is other current members of the group coming after them. That's why their identities are disguised. They don't care about the cops and general public. They're worried about other people from the group trying to kill them. Uh, And, you know, they basically were like, look, it's a terrorist organization. It is a domestic terrorist organization. The goal is to kill people. And they're still operating out there uh, with, you know, basically no interference from law enforcement. So, uh, well, stay on that for a second. If they're worried about retaliation, are you worried about retaliation for the work you do? You know, I think everyone reporting in this space, reporting on this beat, has to be concerned with their safety. But but also just broadly, I think uh, we're at this time in, in American life where there is retribution for what people are saying online. We saw a massive amount of anti-Semitic harassment uh, leading up to the 2016 election, particularly aimed at Jewish journalists, but aimed at all mm-hmm. kinds of people. So you you read these statistics about, you know, the... the uh, the killings and the violent attacks by white supremacists are pretty significant when compared to other kinds of of groups. So I'm wondering, what's up with law enforcement? I mean, why are they not a little bit... And you're doing a lot of their work for them. You did that in Charlottesville where you identified these people that eventually were were, uh, arrested, but they weren't doing it. You were doing it. So what's going on? Yeah, I think part of it is that that focus on... um, a sort of ter- like you you pointed it out on a, a 9/11 style terrorism. Yeah. I think there's a focus on that. And it's going to be Muslims. Been... It's going to be Saudi Arabia. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think partially what you're seeing is a loss of subject matter expertise. Like I know the people that have done these kind of cases in the past, and they're not working in law enforcement now. They've aged out. And I don't think the newer generation of investigators really know this world. Yeah, I see. Last thing for me, we we heard uh, Mason, James Mason, talk about, I don't know if it's fair to say what an inspiration Donald Trump is, but it's pretty close to that. Does the average uh, Adam Waffen member, or even if they're not part of the Adam Waffen division, the kinds of people who you have researched and reported on, do they see Trump as an inspiration? That's a great, great question. Two schools of thought. Most of the Adam Waffen guys don't like Trump. You know, Why? Because he's not radical enough for them. But, but Mason, on the other hand, says, hey, this guy, there's a lot to like there. I think this guy might be taking us in a, in a fascist direction. And then another portion of the movement, the current white supremacist movement, is pretty pro-Trump. And you know, they have their, their problems with him, but they're supportive. So there's two factions within the movement. So how worried are you about, based on what you know about these continuing lone wolf attacks or maybe non-lone wolf attacks? And what should the, the cops and, and the FBI, et cetera, be doing? What can they do? 
You know, I don't want to be I don't want to be super alarmist. When we look at hate crimes, we're still down from where we were at the modern peak after 9/11. We're still down from the from our contemporary high. But it's getting it's getting worse and worse by the year, and I think we do need to be concerned about this and I think we do need to expect that we will see more of these attacks and that if we don't intervene meaningfully, that they're going to get worse. Well, well, congratulations. Really it's a great piece. It's a very upsetting piece. And like I said before, you're a brave guy. We didn't Braver get, than us. We didn't we even get that. to going yeah. out to the desert in that place. I was a nervous wreck uh, worrying about you in the out, desert. Right? Yeah. A.C. Thompson is a reporter Thanks, with ProPublica. His latest documentary in collaboration with Frontline is documenting hate, new American Nazis. You can catch it tomorrow night right here on WGBH2 at 9 o'clock, followed by the other terrific documentary A.C. Thompson did, Documenting Hate, Charlottesville. To learn more and to see other Frontline reporting, go to pbs.org slash WGBH slash Frontline. A.C., thank you very much for coming in. Up next, it's time for All Revved Up with the Reverends Iron Monroe and Emmett Price. They're next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston. Online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan here with us in Studio 3 to take on the moral dilemmas of the day. Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price that join us every Monday for All Revved Up. Irene is a syndicated religion columnist, the Boston voice for Detroit's African American Heritage Trail, and a visiting researcher in the Religion and Conflict Transformation Program at BU School of Theology. Emmett's professor and founding executive director of the Institute for the Study of Black Christian Experience at Gordon Kenwell Theological Seminary. Irene and Emmett, good to see you. Thanks for having us back. I'm glad to be here. And you're looking quite fetching, Jim. I have a new shirt. What can I say? He's a new shirt. It's very nice. By the way, off the air, she didn't say you have a great shirt. She said, for once, you're wearing something that is not like crap. Isn't that what you said? That's what she said. Good paraphrase. That is what she said. It's also true. Irene Monroe, we're going to start with you because you predicted this a few weeks ago that members of black churches going to arm up, uh, and they have this particular church in Kentucky. What's going on? That's right. I, I mean, absolutely here. And and God, you know, God forbid if that gentleman. We're talking about the uh, the church in Jefferson, Kentucky. Had that door not been locked, that would have been another bloodbath, and probably worse than the one that was in South Carolina. As my nemesis on this issue, it, the, the Reverend uh, Price here, he thinks that guns ought not to be in church. But what I remind him is that when we think about the civil rights movement, 
movement, many of the, many of the folks, many of the not the congregants so much, but certainly the ushers, the security guards of the church, certainly were armed. Well, they they were members of in the in the congregation that were uh, did work in law enforcement, had permits to carry weapons, and apparently they're carrying them. As the headline said, "We are armed now." So, what do you think? By happened? the way, it's not just law enforcement. Just to be clear, I know you didn't mean it that way, but it came out that law enforcement people who have permits is law enforcement people and anybody and else with who permits. has a permit yes, right I'm in this sorry. Jefferson right. Town thing right. place. I'm going to let my inner voice speak for me. I- Irene, would you take this, please? Okay, very well then. <laughs> yes, because this is not about gun, g- God, and glory. This is about safety. How, how, how did you, I do? You're doing it great. So, so one church in Kentucky does not mean all black churches. Yeah. And so the majority of black churches around the around the nation. And you're are, not speaking are, for all black are, churches. I'm not. I'm not. Mm-hmm. Are moving towards increased vigilance in terms of safety. But that does not mean guns. There are various ways to to make sure that houses of worship are safe um, in terms of different protocols and procedures and different, you know, you know, b- being aware of your surroundings and what. what but not. theirs were. The doors were locked. So one would argue they did a great they job. They had the protocols in place. That's it did right. save their lives. It caused two other people. But but they obviously don't think it's enough, That's right. even though it prevented them from being uh, harmed. And, and Emmett, you, you're, not, you're, not being, you're, not, you're not being honest here, because one of the things is you can talk kind of smugly about this, because you have law enforcement. You not know. armed. Oh, well, not armed. Okay. But, but, but my point is this here. Right. I agree we can't speak for all, but most, but most do. Yeah. Now, and, and, and it doesn't matter whether you're Wait, most this, do what? Most uh, do allow people to bring weapons not, not in? Not weapons, but many of them at this point, because of what happened in South Carolina in 2015, many of them, are, many, not, many of them do have guns, not the parishioners themselves, but have some sort of security where they're, where they're carrying guns here. Um, and, and I think we had something here uh, in Massachusetts. Massachusetts just recently, uh, with 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 gun safety, with you know a church being a t- oh with graffiti. I'm thinking it was graffiti on a, on a church. I mean, when you're when you're in Kentucky, Kentucky has a very different culture than Massachusetts, which has a very different culture than Maine, and so certain places are akin to having you know permit and carry. Um, places and, and churches. Massachusetts not necessarily a permit and carry uh, a state where you have people openly armed, and so I think that's one thing to think but about as well. People do carry, though. I'm not suggesting you, you that know. they don't, but but I think there's a difference of being in a place where where you can openly carry versus a place. Well, where I don't you can't. because I think that if you feel threatened, you will carry a gun. You will do something to protect yourself, and and if you have to go but underground, that would mean you that will. would mean that would mean you know a lot of people. Regular people like women walking alone, or even guys well, walking alone, feel threatened. So maybe we should all have guns. No, see, that, see, this is where it becomes hyper, hyperbolic. Here, what what we're talking about is people at church who want to, for um, for an hour or two, suspend the worries of the world, and you can do it a lot easier when you feel that you have security. And what happened? What are you saying? It's one thing to have security at the door, which is horrible, but maybe necessary. Nece- yeah, but. Okay, you're in a church, and you have several dozen parishioners armed, and somebody does come in with a weapon. I mean, is that a prescription for absolute... You know, it's very interesting, because I I keep thinking that the image that that you're going to is like these sort of, like, what, pistol-packing parishioners? And that's that's not the case here. I think that what I I understood about the Jefferson Church here... No, not everybody. Jefferson Town. Town, I'm sorry. Uh, You know, were carrying guns. But it was very clear who in the congregation had guns, uh, and they and they were part of the security. 
So I, it's not something that, oh, I'm just going to carry a gun. Well, actually, it is. The, uh, here it says the pastor asked members who work in law enforcement have permits to bring their guns right. inside the church during those, services and right, Bible study. No, but those are the known folks. I'm just saying it's just not like someone like myself say, well, let me just go in this church but today most, and carry but, a gun. But most are not known. I mean, most we, we go to, to our congregations whatnot, and with the exception of pastors and a couple of other key leaders, most people don't know what people do for for jobs they they see them as you know uh good god-fearing people who come to pray and who come to sing and who come to worship but most people don't know i disagree you know, with who, that because who, i think who the secret service people in the in the house of worship are who the fbi folks in the house of worship who the detectives are i disagree most people with that who are detectives and law enforcement don't want to be known they no, want to come I, worship I, but i understand people. it but we're talking about security force and it's in a time where there's a heightened fear about about being safe in your congregation where it's so, so my point is, is that it's, and in, I don't, I can't speak for all churches, but most of the black churches that I've pastored, and I'm, and I'm sure you, we know what our parishioners do for a living. We know who works. And I'm wor- saying that we as pastors do, we do. But I'm saying you're talking about the people in the pews feeling safer because they know because that we, the law, they don't know who the law enforcement people are in the pews. No, they may not know that. But so I how think are they going to feel safer but, unless but they see guns as, waving as, around? Because as as pastors, we will say we have protection. We, we that's something that definitely definitely doesn't go underground and unspoken How does that, one last thing on this, because we're never going to resolve, well, we're yeah, not, we're for not. now we're going to resolve this debate. How does it change the feel inside the church? Let's assume for argument's sake that you're right, Irene. Let, give it to you for purposes of this discussion. How does it change the feel if somebody, it's sort of how I feel, you know, when kids have to pass through a, a metal detector and it may be necessary to go into their high school. What's it like in that room when you're standing preaching and people feel the only way they can be safe sitting in the room is if there are a number of people who are armed with weapons. I would feel the same way that they felt in Ebenezer Baptist Church down in Alabama during the Civil Rights Movement, that we have some people that will do their best, mm-hmm. and, we will, and we will just, as we say, uh, give it to God. It's the same kind of safety as the folks at 12th Baptist when those four little girls were bombed. 16th that we wa- Street. 16th Street. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm thinking of 12th Baptist here. Mm-hmm. Is that we 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 walk with a wariness, but we just hope for the best. Let's move on. Uh, 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 did the Catholic bishops accomplish anything at all last week in uh, Baltimore? <laughs> they were shut down, as people know. They were going to vote, take some votes on some stringent new requirements. Even though we don't bishops. know what stringent new requirements mean, <laughs> right. as far as so, we're <laughs> right. giving them credit for what they almost did. Allegedly, we, we let's say know, allegedly, allegedly stringent. Okay, yeah. And um, the Vatican said that uh, hold off. We're going to wait till we're all here together in February. <laughs> they they accomplished one major thing, Marjorie. Making themselves look really bad. Yeah, I mean, they did. you know, across across the board. Um, one, the Pope and the Vatican definitely just botched this up. Yeah, um, another major botch. But then the U.S. bishops and even the U.S. cardinals really botched this up because they have a responsibility, they have a fiduciary responsibility, not just money, but in terms of stewardship of of, of the Catholic Church here to speak up for the Catholic Church in the United States. And so we understand the global you know notion and how the church is moving in other places and thriving in some spaces and whatnot. But they're responsible for here, and they punted. Yeah, they did. And, you know, the interesting thing is it's, it, the optic is horrible because it says I'm more concerned about the reputation of the church than I am about the parishioners. And then what they do as a distraction, you 
Leno is sort of say that we will canonize um, or we will endorse, I'm sorry, we will endorse the canonization of Thea Bowman. And a lot of people, you know who she is, right? Uh, okay. Well, I don't. Okay. Well, okay. Uh, well, that's what they did. Is, Who is she? Uh, she? Just give us a short Well, version. I call her the Fannie Lou Hamer uh, mm-hmm. of the Catholic Church here. She's the first black member of, of the Franciscan Sisters, okay. and she served in Jackson, uh, Mississippi here. So so she will go up during that time to uh, be so – she'll be the second woman behind Mother Teresa. You know, one of the things that was troubling to me beyond the fact that the bishops didn't have the – courage, frankly, to do the right <laughs> thing by their parishioners, uh, uh, is there was a story in the Globe about uh, uh, Cardinal O'Malley, Boston Archdiocese, to address social justice with new ministries. This is over the weekend. And it's called uh, the Archdiocese in, I, I know I mispronounced it, Social Justice Ministry to combat what Pope Francis calls the globalization of indifference on issues like racism, immigration, and affordable housing. All important, uh, led by uh, uh, Cardinal O'Malley. And, and my reaction to this, I think, was, and this may be totally unfair and I want to get your feedback, is one, uh, he still hasn't responded That's to what right. Helen Drynan, uh, mm-hmm. the president of Simmons College, has correctly requested, in my estimation, more transparency about is it true that the secretary, his secretary, <laughs> stopped, stopped right. two letters from getting to him, one about McCarrick and one about somebody else. And two, I think I would say, why don't you fix the committee that you've been chairing for the last few years? I don't know what it's called, but the commission right. about sexual abuse of children before you go off creating another one to allegedly – do it's almost to me, and again, this is where it may be unfair, like a misdirection play. Let's let's talk about the great things we're going to do, and the Catholic Church does do a lot of great things for immigrants and other uh, the poor people and that sort of thing. But let's talk about that, so hopefully we can turn attention away from our utter failure to answer questions about ourselves and to do something to protect uh, young people. Is that unfair? No, I don't think it's unfair at all. I think, you know, usually when we talk about chaos, we try to make some kind of substantiated notion of controlled chaos, that (laughs) that people know what's happening, and even though it's chaotic, this is uncontrolled chaos, and it is just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, And it's horrific, and a lot of good people are suffering. Well, they've been suffering. I think the thing about Sean O'Malley, who I had a tremendous respect for, and just really considered him a kind of no Holzbard kind of cardinal when he first started here is that he's he's flubbed on this issue too. And so 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 I always go back to this question. Is the church salvageable? And 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 particularly the, the American church, because I think that where where the parishioners are growing in numbers in this in what I call the Southern Communion uh, in Africa and in, in Asia, uh, they're diminishing South here. South America. South America, mm-hmm. that's right. They are diminishing here in, in the American church. And what and why they're diminishing, thanks to the, to the Spotlight team bringing the issue to the fore, this is a much more activist church and wants justice done. Hey, I just want to pump myself here. I read a column today about <laughs> oh, a, I just read it, actually, a uh, Thomas Keating, who news. was not that's a pedophile great. priest. He didn't cover up any pedophiles. And he was a really great guy who just died, and it's a little uplifting for those who are just <clears throat> brokenhearted about it's the performance of the piece, Catholic actually. Church. Thank you, Jim. Tell us no, more really about because I know a lot of folks don't know much about him. Keating. Yeah, about Keating. He was a Trappist monk like Thomas yeah. Merton, and he yeah. founded this uh, group called Contemplative Outreach, which which teaches a kind of meditative Tation. practice yeah. that is uh, – 
many people find very uplifting. And he talks about silence as the first language of God and everything else is a poor uh, second. And um, he, thousands of people follow. My point was that he most Catholics... Well, yeah. my point was that most Catholics haven't even heard of him. Right. And right. most Catholics don't know a lot about their own faith except for these pretty dismal masses on Sunday, which have oftentimes lousy music and lousy sermons. <laughs> there's, there's more going but on. Wonderful, oh, but wonderful, but beautiful vestments, though. They do have beautiful yeah, vestments. Beautiful vestments. I mean, thank God. I went to a church, I will not name it, for an anniversary mass this weekend, and I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Can this woman be any more off-key? It was awful. I don't well, think do that's you know the what? biggest problem. There oh, yeah, that is, that's the least it. of it. It sort of is, though. I mean, if you go to a black church, you've got great music oh, yeah. going yeah, on but the you black should go to, you should go to Father Stalin's church. He's a black Catholic in D.C. In D.C.? In D.C. And yeah. there is a charismatic. Can he sing? Oh, can, can, oh, can he? Okay. Uh, not only that, but he can preach. Yeah, well, the poor Catholics, stuff. they need both. They need, good, they need to stop the pedophilia, stop the cover-up, and a little better preaching and a little better But you music. know how that can happen? If you let more women in the church. That's right. Let more women in the church. Bishops yeah. are going to do that right yeah. after they do the thing on the sexual abuse uh, <laughs> uh, so victims, by the way. Let's talk about um, Tarana Burke. And it is so true. You know, she started this whole Me Too She certainly movement. did in 2000. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, a long time ago. And uh, has sort of been subsumed by all the Hollywood stars. And she's got a great uh, piece arguing that uh, poor black women and girls have been kind of left behind. Uh, what's her case, Emmett? Or either one of you? Well, I, I mean, she, she makes the case that similar to affirmative action, right? right? So affirmative action is proposed to have benefited people of color, um, people from, you know, ostracized situations. Um, But the reality is affirmative action has benefited white women more than anyone else. And and middle-class white women. middle-class women. women. I I think what bothers me, and I'm I'm very glad to hear that Tarana Burke is is speaking up, in essence gave her an award, that last year, you know, New York Times always named the person of the year. And so it was the group called the Silence Breaker, and they were trying to show diversity. And the interesting thing is, and they had a person of color, you know, all of that other stuff, and they they left her out. And so, again, what what it highlights to me more so than anything is that and, and it's the sort of unbearable whiteness of how white women will bleach out women of color and only use us when they want or use our suffering use our paradigm uh to sort of to promote the, their their gender so and that happened again even when the feminist movement that's why well, I the women's was, march wasn't that one of the oh, big ab- debates oh, the absolutely. Women's march trump oh absolutely oh absolutely or and, even and, feminism i mean yeah. the reason why we got the term woman is out of alice walker because they lacked and here we go marjorie an intersectionality there you go <laughs> analysis and coalition and so part, <laughs> part women of, of color part of the challenge though is even with the kavanaugh hearings right that's right Alyssa milano rose up as the leading, you know, uh, woman, um, you know, feminist, if, That's if, right. you, if you would. That's right. Um, as opposed to, you know, countless other women who had been speaking and whatnot. Yeah. And so, so this notion that everyone else is... Uh, invisible, or secondary, for, secondary you know, the white to their women. cause, and what happens here, and it's the using of black women. I, it remind me of the election that, uh, this past December, uh, where they said black women are, are the backbone. We're the backbone of the Democratic Party now, certainly of the black church. But there's this book called, and, and white women should look it, look it up. It's called This Bridge Called My Back. One of the things that I say to white women who want me as a friend here, I tell them a couple of things here. They do because it's it's cachet, it's 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 status. I, I tell 
them a couple of things. I tell them that I'm not taking care of Miss Ann. I'm not driving Miss Daisy. I'm not your chauffeur, your maid, your nanny, and your only black friend. How's that working out for you? uh, uh, I have very few. (laughs) (laughs) And those that I have, I know because because they really want to be my friend. You know, well, on honest a serious woman, note, Irene, I, honest woman. The thing you said about Milano before you guys leave, I bet you if you stopped 100 people right oh, yeah. now who consider themselves immersed in That's Me right. Too advocacy, I bet you five of them, if that, would mention Burke and 95 of them would oh, mention Milano. Yeah. Oh, and by absolutely. the way, it doesn't mean what Milano did no, 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 is not yeah. important. No, no, right. no. But it's well, almost like it's an airbrushing of on history. On the great Saturday Night Live edition when, when Matt Damon was oh, playing was Judge Kavanaugh, yeah. yeah. they were all hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> and they had that cardboard cutout of Alyssa Milano flopping <laughs> oh, right. up over that's right. his head every oh, absolutely. two seconds. Yeah. She becomes the iconic yeah. image. Yeah. And that's very Well, wasn't that because that was his former girlfriend who trashed him? Wasn't that right after he made that comment that they're gradations of but the reason why Tyronic did this was really to give an invisible demographic group that is sexually assaulted, and there's a double whammy. They're black, they're poor, and then in a community, as, as large a community, that don't have voice uh, to, or a venue to talk about that. And it doesn't mean that when you, def- when you, when you, when you set up something like that, that it's not user-friendly to other demographic groups. But it's an appropriation, if not a, a, a stealing of something that, that, that then just washes out, bleaches out the very people that are to, to benefit from it. Good to see you both. As always. A little pause. Why was there a long a pause, pause there for a second? I thought Irene was going to speak for me. Yeah, well, I was, I, I, I was but, I, I, but I, I, leave, I leave Marjorie with that thought again about the importance of intersectionality. Intersectionality. I tell you, you okay. are way ahead of your time. It's, it's doing my you ministry. Said it, and then all of a sudden all I saw it everywhere, and I said, my God, Irene was way ahead of her time. See you too. Thank you very much, you guys. Have a happy Thanksgiving. The Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price join us every week for All Revved Up. Irene is a syndicated religion columnist the Boston Voice for Detours African American Heritage Trail, a visiting researcher in the Religion and Conflict Transformation Program at BU School of Theology. Emmett is a professor and founding executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Coming up, Boston, are you ready to go electric? A pilot will be bringing e-scooters to Boston, but will cars, bikes, and pedestrians Scoot right over them. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Mardrigan. In Boston, cars and pedestrians have still not figured out how to get along. It's just as contentious between bikers and drivers, and things are far from amicable between the ambulatory and the cyclists. So will Boston's mean streets be even meaner if we introduce e-scooters into the mix? Come springtime, pilot program could be headed to Boston. There's a story in the Globe today, by the way. One of the selling points is that e-scooters could relieve congestion, which obviously needs some relieving. But do people who currently rely on cars to get around, are they really the ones who will be picking up scooters instead? Is interjecting another mode of transportation going to make traffic more manageable or worse? 877-301-897. If you're somebody, by the way, who uses an e-scooter, we'd love to hear from you. What are the pros? If you had a bad encounter with an e-scooter, what was that? What are the cons? 
301-8970. Now, before I begin, we should point out that we almost lost Jim yesterday. We didn't almost lose him. At a near-tragic encounter between Jim and a bicyclist in Cambridge, and he came into work today. Nonetheless, he toughed it out. Mm-hmm. He's not feeling well. He's got his crutches over there. And I have a crutch. I don't have two crutches. Okay, you have, I have one, a single you, crutch. You have, oh, a single crutch. What's, yeah. the, what's the point of a single crutch? Because it helps. I have a bad leg as a okay. result of this uh, uh, this uh, encounter, encounter with a cyclist so in Cambridge. A cyclist is heading right, right, right toward you, correct? Right, and not paying attention yep. to earplugs in. Earplugs and I in. yelled when he's feet away from me, mm-hmm. and uh, he, swerved. he swerved. I went down, and he took off. I guess he didn't want to interrupt his listening to the music. He just. Disappeared. And on the sides of the road, one and all was chanting, Anchorman. And down. <laughs> okay. In any case, uh, I know it's very amusing. 877-301-8970. So the relevance of that, by the way, it is relevant. Despite Marjorie just picked it up because any mockery, even if I'm in pain, is good mockery. <laughs> we know that. And I can, it's fine. It's okay with me. Uh, it is. Listen to her. It's the happiest she's been in months. Uh, uh, uh. One of our producers says, so the talker is, would you hit Jim with a bike if you could? <laughs> yeah, That's we can forget good, about scooters way. and just go right there. By the way, I am, in all seriousness, long before yes, I am ter- I am ter- about the prospects of having electric scooters on the roads. And I assume that there are going to be regulations that say they can't be on the sidewalks. Right. I'm holding my breath because you're not supposed to ride a bicycle on the sidewalk, too. I have to say, I, I, I'm torn, I, I should say. On one hand, I totally buy the argument, as is made. Who wrote the piece in the Globe this morning? Beth Titel. Beth Titel, right. Uh, 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 I'm totally uh, uh, moved by the notion, the argument, that congestion is so out of control, and it is so out of control, that anything like this would be helpful. But we haven't figured out yet, as I said in the opening, how, and this has nothing to do with my own travails from yesterday, how cyclists and drivers can peacefully coexist and we're introducing, I would argue, something that's more dangerous because of how fast it's going to go. And, and so uh, I would say we should take a pause until we have uh, figured out the uh, cycling situation. And by the way, everybody is so de- – you know what I mentioned on the air the other day? What? What you that, mention? Uh, that I, I forget what the exact number was, but in the 12 minutes or 11 minutes it took me to, it takes me to drive to work from Inman Square to Brighton mm-hmm. where we work – uh, I had seen somewhere in the neighborhood of 10, 11, I can't remember the number, of uh, cyclists. This is in the morning. Yep. Go through, uh, violate a, a traffic regulation. And immediately, instead of uh, cyclists tweeting me and saying that's horrible, they're the outliers, we have to make sure that doesn't happen, what do they say always? Oh, people driving cars are even worse. I right. mean, th- there's no – and so if you can't resolve the threshold – problem that we now encounter, cyclists and drivers, I'd say put a hold on these electric scooters until we do. Are you, where are you on this? Well, uh, they're coming, apparently. Uh, this, it's a worldwide craze, Jim. We have pictures of people scooting around in other countries. One in other France. Other cities here, and they're billion-dollar yeah. companies behind this, by they the way. They go about 15 uh, miles per hour max, so it's not that fast. You can probably go much faster than that in a bike, can't you, mm-hmm. if you're a really good bicyclist? But, you know, you're right. I mean, they are going to be in the sides of the road, causing more congestion. On the other hand, the traffic is absolutely terrible. We're not going to fix the T anytime soon. Governor Baker has said he's going to be slow and steady in his next administration. We're not going to have anything dramatic. I read that story in the Globe this weekend. Was that what it was? Well, it was, yeah, kind of more, more of the same, same thing. Yeah. No dramatic kind, mm-hmm. of, kind of changes, which means the T is not going to be reliable, and people are really desperate. I mean, it's just horrible driving around here. It's horrible trying to get out of Boston anytime now. Our number is 877-301-8970, but we can all be grateful that Jim survived this encounter because um, 
It wasn't good. He was in the emergency room, and okay, heaven knows. enough already. Uh, enough. You don't have to tell every detail. Should I tweet out a photograph of my you leg, should. too? You should. I'm it's very swollen. That. But tomorrow he'll be able to get some marijuana salve to put on his leg, and that will take away the By pain. By the way, let me be clear. I have not. I didn't even bring this up today. You've brought it up now three times. So I'm not complaining. I'm not whining. Don't send me a text saying, oh, poor Jeff. I didn't bring this up. Marjorie is bringing bring it, it up repeatedly. That's right. But, but in a serious note, there have been a lot of pedestrians felled by bicycles, mm-hmm. and uh, there'll be more pedestrians felled by scooters. But as a bicyclist could tell me, I think you can go a lot faster than 15 miles an hour on a bike. So what do you think about this proposal? They could be here in May, big time. In the spring, at least, the cyclists uh, are giving way to the scooters. The scooters could be taking over. Mike, They're not giving way. They're going to add to they're it, They're going to add to Okay, well. Joel and Ashland, you're first. Mike, we'll get you in a second. Joel and Ashland, you're first on Boston Public Radio. How are you doing? Great. How are you guys? Excellent. So, uh, a few months ago, I talked to you about going down to Austin for the Live Strong Ride. Oh, yes, actually, so yeah. I'm a cyclist. I do a lot of cycling. I do the pan mass as well. Uh, the, but these e-scooters are all over Austin. They're on the sidewalks. They're bombing across the crosswalks, and they are really a menace. You, you can't even hear them coming half the time. Um, so I do think that there needs to be some sort of regulation. And is there going to – I don't uh, – is there going to be? I don't know. Uh, they're totally unregulated in Austin. I could just go up and grab one if I wanted to and start riding it without a helmet or anything. And, is that, you know, I have to say, you seem to know more about this, Joel, than we do. It, 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 from the articles I read, I think Beth mentions this, too, the Cambridges, the Bostons, whatever, are going to pass some sort of regulations. Are they not prior to this? This Well, actually, I've already seen them on the road, so I guess it, it's a little late to the fair. So if you were if you were the if you were the czar of this Joel, would you put them on hold for the time being at least or no? I don't think I would put them on hold, but I would I would want because it's going to happen at some point. So I just think we need to think about regulating them going forward. I'm with you. Joel, thank you very much for the Austin experience. Have there been to Austin? Have you been to Austin? No, I've never been to Austin. I would love yeah, to go great. to Austin. But, you know, bicyclists are all supposed to stop right now at red lights. And, I, they're, and supposed, they're subject to the same exactly. laws so as drivers of cars sure are. I'm not sure the regulations, unless there's going to be a massive in, increase of police officers pulling over people on bikes and scooters, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change. Can I tell you, I've said this before. Mm-hmm. I know people are tired of this. If every major city decided to strictly enforce the traffic laws against automobiles and cyclists and these scooters – a day a month, all of the almost all of the illegality would end because people would be worried they were going to get nabbed. Right, you have to fool them though. You can't give them forewarned. I wasn't suggesting. Yeah, forewarning. you have to sneak up. Mike in a car. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Hey, Mike, how are you? How are you guys doing today? We're good. good. <laughs> well, here's here's the deal with me. I I literally just got back from last week in D.C. It was flooded with people because all the new freshman photos and all that were down there. And let me tell you, it was scattered or uh, uh, littered with these these scooters you're speaking of. It's an app you put on your phone. It's not like the e-bikes or whatever they call it, the blue bikes, where you just, when you're done with it, you put it back in a, in a lock stand. Mm-hmm. You pay like 15 seconds a mile or whatever it is. And once you're done with it, you just leave it on the ground. You can leave it anywhere. Five Love that. Someone's front lawn, between two cars. It's it's and these these things fly pretty fast. Well, what is it? What is, it, what is it? Fifteen miles an hour. What's the speed limit on these things? I think fifteen miles an hour or something like that. So wait a second. They, they can essentially just like whatever those was it ant bikes or whatever they're called. They can be left anywhere. They're not docked or anything like that. Is that right? 
Exactly. Yeah, exactly. If you Great. if you walk like I was walking along with my buddy, and like ten o'clock at night, we looked down. Hey, it's one of these. Whoops. Move fly you. So you actually needed it, and it would just link into some over, overhead satellite somewhere. I'm guessing, and you just whisk away, and every it. it you know, use it as long as you need it. And when you're done, you just toss it away like you're throwing away some trash. It's, it's pretty. Uh... Sounds very exciting. Mike, thanks for the D.C. So, report. Well, we've got somebody else. Caroline uh, says she lives in D.C. and scooters are a disaster. They're a horrible idea. The overall the sentiment is in D.C. Residents are, are hate the scooters, but the scooter riding community is very vocal. And so the debate continues. And she says, as an, uh, she says she has been she's pregnant and she's nearly been struck several times by people goofing around and fooling uh, on, with, on the scooters on the sidewalks at full speed and so forth. And then at night you can't see them. So it doesn't sound very promising down there in D.C. Doesn't sound so promising here either, does it? No. You know what the problem is? And again, Beth makes this point. There, congestion is so totally out of control that people may be more willing to do this thing than they might ordinarily be because there are no answers that are happening. Do you, you know? Uh, a couple of emailers, Jim, want to know how many MRIs you had. I didn't have an MRI. <laughs> how, many, how many different opinions you I saw for the I, multiple. I asked for a couple of, a couple of competing <laughs> opinions. But let me tell you, the vending machines yeah. were really good. Did you have to switch hospitals, or could you get the second opinion in the I same hospital? I decided to stay within the hospital. Few, you have to go to a few different emergency rooms. Again, I'm going to say this for the last time. I did not bring up <laughs> that I was almost hit by a bike, went down, and had to go to the emergency room. Marjorie did. I didn't I bring did. it up the second time either. She did. I didn't bring it up the third time, and I didn't bring up whether I had NMRIs or X-rays. No, you didn't. I didn't. But I must say, when I picked up the globe this X-rays. morning, and I saw the electric scooter story, Who'd I said— Who did you think of? Here's the guy to talk Thank about electric much. scooters. The injured Jim Brady almost felled by a bicyclist yesterday, and it would have been a very sad situation. If For you. Were not able to, it would have been very bad. Let's have – we actually have somebody on the other side of this, finally. Tom and Medford, you're next on Boston Public Radio. What do you think about them, Tom? Hi, guys. Hi. Sorry about the accident, Jim. Oh, that's okay. I'm really fine, despite what Marjorie is. I mean, I am in huge pain, but I decided that I have to just endure yeah. – well, we carried him down to the stretcher. I'm not in huge pain. This joke. Go ahead, Tom. They did carry me in a sedan chair, actually. It was. Sedan chair. Uh, Tom, go ahead. What do you think? It took a lot of us. Okay, fine. Go ahead. I was initially a skeptic about the whole scooter thing, but then I was in Los Angeles, and I was riding with my friends, and it was really just a blast. And ever since then, I've looked for them in every city I've been to. So, What's the blast part of it? I mean, it, it, what's the fun part of it, and isn't the danger part of it of concern, or did you not care about that? What's your deal? Jim, you're riding along at 60 miles per hour. You got the uh, wind in your hair. It's uh, you're flying past people um, who are just walking the sidewalk. And I think that the big problem is having them on the sidewalk and having them lying around. And I think that everyone should wear a helmet too. So that is a very fine point. I am a pro helmet kind of. That is how about that, Marjorie? Well, Tom, thanks for uh, I don't see your helmets advocacy. on these people That's here exactly that are riding the scooters point. in Boston. The best hotel story just today. Can I tell you something? It, 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 Tom just said, and Tom's mm-hmm. an advocate for these things. It's obvious. Tom said no sidewalks. My attitude. I feel so strongly about the sidewalk thing. The fines should be huge if someone is found on us. And it's not one of those first time you get a warning, second time you get a fifty buck thing. They are a huge menace. If they could kill people in the sidewalks, could they not? They're very dangerous. Exactly. Well, exactly. No, they're very That's... dangerous. I mean, I did a story a few years ago, and I was still at the Herald about someone that was knocked over in the sidewalk. Mm. It was kind of a hit and run situation, not unlike yours. But James has got uh, new information. He says this just in: Jesus. <laughs> police in Cambridge have issued a statement. They have narrowed down the people who tried to run Jim over to five thousand people. <laughs> That's funny. That's a pretty good line. 
They're working their way. I, I heard you. I, I heard you the first time. The long okay, list. fine. We know it's five. Jennifer in Pro- <laughs> Jennifer in Providence. Hi, Hi Jeff. Hello. How are Hi, you? Hi. Sorry about your accident. I'm, I'm fine. Stop. Thank you. I'm fine. But go ahead. What's going <laughs> on? You are getting sympathy. Anyhow, I live in Providence, and we have not only the scooters, we have the jump bikes too. And living in what Marjorie may be familiar with, the east side of Providence, yes. we have Brown and Risky students who have taken these on, which is fine. I understand the need for alternate transportation. The problem is there's no regulation. They want the best of both worlds. They're going to go through the stop sign. I agree. They go through the stop light. They're in the middle of the street. I've had them make U-turns in front of me on Hope Street, Marjorie. I was almost taken out by one when I was on the sidewalk on Wayland Square. They aren't wearing helmets. And they're laughing as they're whizzing by. So, yes, I do think they're not a bad idea, but the, until there is proper regulation, they're made to wear helmets, and there's some degree of identification of who's riding what bike. So when somebody does have an accident, you have a way of tracing it, and there has to be some form of insurance as well. So, you know, this is a good idea, but it needs a little bit longer in the oven to take the cookies out. Thank you. Hey, that was thank a great you. call, Jennifer. That was a great call. There's a lot of, uh, I'm getting much more opposition than favorable uh, email. Uh, uh, Bogo says, uh, I live in San Diego now and they're everywhere. It's annoying and very dangerous, although fun, but not sure of the solution because they're not following the rules that the c- city set up for them. Too. You know, well, I don't know if there are rules. I mean, Best Titel writes, Boston, Brookline, Cambridge, and Somerville are working together to develop a multi-municipality pilot program. That is good that it'd be the same rules and all for those jurisdictions to bring scooters to the area, according to the Boston Transportation Department. But I've seen scooters, on, I've seen electric scooters on the street already. Why are they allowed to operate if it turns out there's no pilot program in place? Do you well, have an I answer to that? These, I thought they just sort of showed up and people began using them. Wasn't that the big controversy? I believe in that is. The, I believe that's the yeah. situation. Well, I think it was the controversy in Boston as well. Marty Walsh, by the way, is with us on uh, the thirty. This Friday? No, not this Friday. A week this from is Friday? The day after Thanksgiving. 30th. A week from Friday. Yeah, the 30th. Yeah. And this will be one of the items on the agenda. What's next? David from Medfield. Hi, Hi David. David. Hi. I hear all about the talk about safety on, for cyclists and for uh, scooters. The simplest thing that any cyclist can do or any scooter rider can do to, to make, is to make himself seen. In other words, wear a white shirt or a white jacket or, or maybe a, a luminous yellow one. But if, you, if you're wearing anything dark, uh, drivers will lose you in the shadows. Uh, it, it, when, you, when, you, when you look down the street at, at a crowd, the first, pe- first people you see are the, wear- the ones that are wearing white. And a scooter, a cyclist but you're worried, David, I, I agree with you. You're worried about their safety. I'm worried about my safety. I mean, I am too, but, I, but you, the, the, the newspaper stories are all about this uh, bicyclist who was killed. Oh, obviously, by the, by the Museum of Science, yeah. Yeah. That was and, horrible. And all, all, all over. But wearing, wearing white is the biggest thing I think they could do to make sure that they're seen, at least. Okay. Well, I think that's a fine reform in this multi-municipality pilot program. Well, the Globe editorializes about this special deal, which will enable truck drivers not to be able to make... Those side things. Yeah, the side guards. The, it's um, not happening, though. N- well, they just editorialized. They just favor. editorialized, but it might be something for you to consider. How about helmets? Can we get back to the helmet thing? By the way, if you're not if you're not required, you're not required, which I think is insane, to wear a helmet mm-hmm. on a, a bicycle. But bicycles, for the most part, except for like uh, you know couriers, are not going as quickly 
as these things are, not to mention that they're electric powered, should they not have to have, uh, what do you call them, helmets? Yes? Well, I guess so. We may, I, what do you I mean, mean I, I guess think so? I think Why it's wouldn't 12 they? and under, isn't it? 12 and under have to have helmets? On bicycle, these are electric scooters, though. They're not like can't, little can't tricycles. Feel your hair going through the breeze. Well, that's what the guy was talking Stephen about, wherever said, he was. Cambridge Police now report they found several boxes of Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> what does that mean? That you were eating oh, Girl Scout cookies. I was actually not. The scene of the crime. Can you imagine anybody else almost getting hit by a bike, having to go to the emergency room, where every emailer is ridiculing the person? I mean, seriously. You're like inciting this kind of behavior from otherwise very respectful kinds of uh, listeners. Apparently it wasn't several boxes. That's an exaggeration. It was, oh, it was, it was just one, it was one box. One box. <laughs> Girl Scout cookies. You have them early in the season, Jim. Okay, I th- are we done? Why we don't have- they just do yeah, I, I, No, we're not. We have 30 seconds. But let me just say quickly, yes. it seems to me these should not be allowed on the roads, period, until the regulations are in place. Am I, is that not a sane well, position? Well, apparently they're breaking the rules everywhere. Just got an email from Kathleen and Waltham, says, and she lives on Moody Street. Everyone cycles and skates and scooters. They're all over the place on the sidewalks. Mm. It's an outrage. I hope you feel better, Jim. This week. Thank you. And all our listeners hope you feel better, Apparently too. they don't, but that's fine. Coming up, it's time for Village Voice with poet Richard Blanco. He's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Bradley and uh, Marjorie And Join us online to lead another edition of Village Voice where we discuss poetry and how it can help us better understand our lives and times as Richard Blanco. We can't understand them any worse than we do. So he's the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history. His latest project is the Fine Press Book Boundaries. It's a collaboration with photographer Jacob Hessler. Hello there, Richard Blanco. Hi. hi. How's everyone doing? Excellent. Oh, very, Thank you. Very good. Thanksgiving week. Everybody's very <laughs> excited about that. So let me ask you, I don't even know how to say this form of poetry. Pantum, is that how you pronounce it? Pantum. Pantum. Okay. What is it? What is it? it? It's it's an old Malay form. Uh, So originally it's kind of like a folk poem. It's called Pantun uh, with a U. Uh, UN, uh, but somehow along the line, it got changed to Pantum, and it's actually quite an old form from 15th century. Uh, later, it was adopted in the 19th century by uh, Baudelaire and Victor Hugo, and then uh, very contemporary authors also use the form a lot. And I just thought I'd, I thought it'd be fun to sort of, you know, people always think we're that poets today only write free verse, free verse, free verse, and really we we do work a lot with really old forms and just try to do fun things with them and sort of bring them up to speed and do you know variations on them. But and also just to honor the tradition. And I thought every once in a while we could do one of these things and sort of turn people on into these old forms and, and seeing what contemporary authors are doing with them, contemporary poets. So so what is the old, what is the old form? How does it work exactly? I read about it, but I have to say I was a little confused. Yeah, it's, it's more confusing in words than actually writing it. But basically, you, it's, it's four-line stanzas, right? So the second line becomes the first line of the set of the following stanza, right? <laughs> and the fourth line of the first stanza becomes the third line of the following stanza. So then stanza number two, again, has two new lines, which are repeated then 
in the third stanza. The third stanza has two repeated lines and two new lines, which are repeated in the next line. So it's kind of like a basket weave effect, um, and then and then you sort of end with the with the with the last with the two lines from the very first stanza that, that were never repeated throughout the poem. So it kind of has this closing effect. And one of the hard things is how to have forward movement in a pantomime that's always repeating itself, and <laughs> and also just the fun things and clever substitutions that come up when you can change a punctuation or you play with some you play with uh, some homonyms or you do things like that and some of them can can be really clever and and uh you know outside of just following the rule to the letter right so it has this basket we've fed okay so wait wait uh, richard i'll say marjorie could you explain that again for us exactly no. what is a pen <laughs> i can't explain it but, but looking at richard's poem i see how it yeah. works though yeah i do so I should mean, we so it it it, it... Yeah, it's one, it's one of those things that looks easier on the page. But basically, the the second and fourth line of 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 one stanza be, become are repeated exactly as the first and the third line in the next stanza, and then. So say we're again what you said at the beginning. The genesis of this, where's this coming from? It's from uh, Malaysia. It's a Malay form, an old sort of. It oh, okay. used to be much. Uh, it was a sort of a folk poem, kind of like a more of a a short uh, kind of like. Um, I wouldn't say song, but it was a, it was more of like a folk poem, sort of just and 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 makes sense, right? Because of those folk things are usually you know more oral tradition, so the repetition allowed obviously for the poem to be remembered, and and it was had more of an imprint in in the memory. So, so yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you a question about sonnets? Sure. You know that's that's a real a form that everybody knows. Shakespeare sonnets, people, million people wrote sonnets. So who came up with that idea? Um, so the sonnet, if I, as far as I've read and remember, actually in its very, very beginning and its origins, was actually, are you ready for this? Um, originated by lawyers. Yeah, <laughs> lawyers. Lawyers? <laughs> Why is that? Um, I don't know the exact dating exactly, but part of it is because the sonnet is, is a, it's a plea. It's an argument. And if you really look at the rhetorical movement of a sonnet, it's, it, it, um, you know, it sets up a premise, advances the premise, then turns, turns, as they say, the turn in the sonnet and then closes the, 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 the argument or the, uh, closes the, the premise with that neat little couplet at the end. So the, the form, I, I mean, I don't think they were writing necessarily, you know, the exact 14 lines, but, but it, the idea of the exchange of, it was like a plea, right? It was like, and if you look at law, really so much of law is about words and about language and how you're arguing both oral, uh, both on the page and also oral, right? So, so if you, one of the, and we'll do, we'll do a show hopefully on that too, because one of the things that we've inherited from the sonnet, besides having to do the A, B, A, B rhyme scheme, really there's a lot more interest, there's a lot more interesting things going on in a sonnet. Just the idea of having to do something in 14 lines, you know, a poem that can be, that can present a premise, respond to it and close and, and um, sort of cinch it, clo- uh, cinch it closed. That's, that's a really a powerful thing, to, a hard thing to do in just 14 lines alone so but we're still very we're writing what we call you know modern science or quasi sonnets um that are really still pay attention still sort of honoring and bringing that um again that tradition forward and 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 seeing what seeing what a sonnet looks like in a contemporary context so we'll do hopefully one show on that okay too. so let's do the pontoon thing what are we starting with 
Okay, we'll start with one of mine. Um, and I love these. I'm horrible at writing sonnets. I don't know why, but pantoums, I love pantoums. I love writing. Um, and uh, and also, what you want to do is sort of pick a subject matter that kind of relates to this idea of the basket weaver, of the turning, uh, of the repetition. And for me, it was well. Let me read it, and then maybe we'll talk about the subject matter itself a little bit more and how that fits into the form. So this is called Place of Mind. Miss haunts the city, tears of rain fall from the awnings and window ledges. The search for myself begins an echo, drifting away the moment I arrive. From the awnings and window ledges follow the rain flowing down the streets. The moment I arrive, I drift away. Why am I always imagining the sea? Follow the rain flowing down the streets, vanishing into the mouths of gutters. Why am I always imagining the sea? A breath, a wave, a breath, a wave. Vanishing into the mouths of gutters, rain becomes lake, river, ocean again. A breath, a wave, a breath, a wave always beginning, yet always ending. Rain becomes lake, river, ocean again. Mist haunts the city, tears of rain fall. Always ending, yet always beginning. The search for myself ends in an echo. Can I tell you, I never heard of this pantoum thing. I have never <laughs> read a poem in this form. I love this. And you were so really, right, that basket weave thing is the perfect yeah. imagery for this. It's yeah, it incredible. Carries, it carries from, from one to the next so, so perfectly. So perfectly. Yeah, and what I was trying to do there with the sub, you know, so there's this idea of rain, right, and the repetition of cycle, right, of rain becoming river, but also the, how, the, you know, it's also about how, you know, that finding one's inner truest self, how you, you feel it for a moment, then it slips away, and, but it's a constant thing in our lives that we're always trying to connect with that deeper self. And so, and so when I was writing a poem, I thought, hmm, this might be an interesting candidate for a sonnet because ultimately it, it's always slipping away from us, right? And, the rain, and rain is always transforming. So just when the line repeats, you know, something else, it moves in, but then it also comes back to the same space again at the end of the poem. So um, I thought it was kind of a neat. It's a, it, for me, it's a very sort of a... It's not typically one of my, I'm, I'm, you know, more of a narrative poet. This is a much more like a lyrical poem and... and, and and with pantoums, it's hard to develop a narrative because, of course, you're repeating yourself. So it's hard to have a storyline. So whenever I find myself in a more of a lyrical moment, I, I, I look for forms that, that can accommodate that a little better. I love it. I really, I love it. What's your next one? So this one is one by David Trinidad, who um, can do some really fun stuff. And I think, I think, I think some, of, some of us older folks will enjoy this. Oh, yeah. I remember this one. <laughs> And, and you'll see how much fun he's having in this, right? Um, and also, I think, again, the form seems to fit um, uh, this idea of cycle, right? This idea of cycle that you can't get out of, right? So it's called uh, Moving with Nancy. <laughs> it's almost time to grow up. I eat my TV dinner and watch Nancy Sinatra in 1966, all boots and blonde hair. I eat my TV dinner and watch the daughter of Frank Sinatra, all boots and blonde hair. She appears on The Ed Sullivan Show, the daughter of Frank Sinatra, 
She sings, these boots are made for walking. She appears on the Ed, Olive, Ed, the Ed, the Ed Sullivan show. The song becomes a number one hit. She sings, these boots are made for walking. She sings something stupid with her father. The song becomes a number one hit. She marries and divorces singer-actor Tommy Sands. She sings something stupid with her father. <laughs> she sings The Last of the Secret Agents. She marries and divorces singer-actor Tommy Sands. She sings How Does That Grab You, Darling? <laughs> she sings The Last of the Secret Agents. She sings Lightning's Girl and Friday's Child. She sings How Does That Grab You, Darling? She sings Love Eyes and Sugartown. She sings Lightning's, Lightning, Lightning's Girl and Friday's Child. She puts herself in the hand of writer-producer Lee Hazelwood. She sings Love Eyes and Sugartown. She co-stars with Elvis in Speedway. She puts herself in the hands of writer-producer Lee Hazelwood. Three gold records later, she co-stars with Elvis Presley in Speedway. She rides in Peter Fonda's motorcycle. Three gold records later, she has developed an identity of her own. She rides on Peter, um, Peter Fonda's motorcycle. The wild angels roar into town. She has developed an identity of her own. Nancy Sinatra in 1966. The wild angels roar into town. It's almost time to grow up. <laughs> I love it. Boy, is that fun? <laughs> so, so there's fun. like, yeah, and there's this thing like, obviously, you know, the the dating and the, the, the you know, the the, <laughs> the the messed up relationships, but also the idea, the idea of the music repeating itself, right, and the way that songs, you know, we love hearing songs over and over again, right, and they stick in our minds. So, so there's a lot of fun stuff going on in in that poem, and it was great to use all the. All the song titles, because um, even though they they repeat, they're so sort of they're, they're sort of they're so sort of catchy, right? Like what they're real, what the song titles are really saying about Nancy's life and love life and whatnot, and her career. So it's it's a fun it's a fun so piece for listeners who were not alive at the time of this <laughs> epic recording. Here's a little bit of Nancy Sinatra. <laughs> You keep saying you've got something for me. We're playing this whole baby, let me tell you right now. Something you call love, but confess. You get to the chorus soon, friend. You've been a messin' where you shouldn't have been a messin'. And now someone else is getting all your best. These boots are made for walking, and that's just what they'll do. One of these days, these boots are gonna walk all over you. One of the finest recordings of love our it. time. Hey, uh, you may Thanks have mentioned for that, this that was ago, perfect. Richard, but uh, uh, do you, uh, I don't know, you can speak for yourself, but you may know more broadly amongst your fellow poets. On this pantoum thing, does someone say, for the most part, I want to write in that format and then create something to fit the format? Or do you come up with something that you think is a concept that would fit the format and work that way. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think it's a combination of both. I think when, when you're trying out a poem, you're sort of like sort of throwing darts at the, at the board and trying to see, well, 
part of the hardest thing about writing a poem, especially when it's in free verse, right, is just trying to find some kind of parameter, you know, some kind of some kind of boundary because you can you know, literally write about anything and go on and on and on. And then sometimes you just have an arsenal of different forms that you've tried in the past and are aware of, and you're like, hmm, maybe this might make a great pontoon because of 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 somehow something instinctually you feel like either the subject matter or the way that you you know the way that you feel the poem that it, like it isn't a narrative and it and you're so, so it all depends like sometimes um for example just yeah like even like i said like even a sonnet sometimes i feel you know what this is kind of going to be a short poem i feel maybe i should try to think about it as a sonnet and then sometimes it doesn't work and you like go on and and chant and move away from the form but it's kind of iterative and it's just sort of training that you you know that you have these things available and and um, and they might make good candidates. And so that's usually the way it works. But but it's just the, the experience of knowing that they're there for you. I don't know why I'm so fascinated by this, but I am. Did you ever write the same theme in two different formats to see how it came out? For example, one in free form or whatever it's called versus a pantoum. You ever done that or no? Not necessarily with a pantoum, but with a villanelle, which is an even harder form. That's one of the hardest um which repeats whole lines, and it's uh, it's uh, Elizabeth Bishop wrote one that just ruined it for everybody for the rest of the eternity because it's such a brilliant piece of work. And that I've tried in both, and I keep on trying to do the villanelle. I did try to do the villanelle, and then like, and then I just work write it out of the villanelle to free up my mind, and I try to put it back into the villanelle. <laughs> and and I've had a couple of fairly decent ones that I think I, I you know I'm not terribly ashamed of, um, but <laughs> one hell of a criterion. <laughs> right, right. But you get on oh, the other. The thing is, you know, you basically get brownie points just for even trying these forms, right? Like, it, like as editors, or even like, you know, in poem, po- poetry contests or poetry book contests, um, just just you get brownie points just to show that you can flex that muscle, so to speak, and 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 also again honor the tradition and know that you're not just, you know, that you're not that you're writing cognizant of that poetry has a long, rich history of forms and and uh, and that we're writing today the way that we write, but that we can we can also look back um, uh, to these uh, forms as inspiration and also as uh, moving them forward. We're talking to Richard Blanco for another edition of Village Voice. Okay, what's the uh, last one, uh, the last poem that's in this form, Richard? Yeah, and you'll see this This one is a very different and much uh, much more, uh, This the gravitas in this poem is really intense and uh, what I like about this is um, since the form repeats, right, there's repeating lines and this idea of the story that you'll see that is something that's repeated and yet uh, every year and yet not repeated. It's an intense poem which deals with racism. Um, it's by Natasha Trethaway, who was our poet laureate a few years ago, um, and it's called Incident. We tell the story every year, how we peered from the windows, shades drawn, Though nothing really happened, the charred grass now green again. We peered from the windows, shades drawn, at the cross, trussed like a Christmas tree, the charred grass still green. Then we darkened our rooms, lit the hurricane candles. At the cross, trussed like a Christmas tree, a few men gathered, white as angels in their gowns. We darkened our rooms, and lit hurricane lamps, the wicks trembling in their their fonts of oil. It seemed the angels had gathered, 
white men in their gowns. When they were done, they left quietly. No one came. The wicks trembled all night in their fonts of oil. By morning, the flames had all dimmed. When they were done, the men left quietly. No one came. Nothing really happened. By morning, all the flames had dimmed. We tell the story every year. So it's not so wow. overt, but so you see the irony of the form where she says, we tell the story every year, and then the idea also that nothing ever happens, and those lines become very powerful because, you know, it is, you know, it's sort of like we don't want to acknowledge that this happened, but yet we tell the story every year, right? And so the idea of the pontoon, but it's... um it's uh, obviously, I think we know what the white angels, uh, what the men gathered, uh, angels gathered white men in their gowns um, and the burning of the cross on the, on the lawn. So um, it's, it's a very powerful, subtle and powerful form, uh, a poem um, that, um, that again, again, the, the pound tomb seems perfect for it. That we tell the story every year and it's like, here we are repeating this, right? And it's like That's repeating right. it one more time, like the form repeats. And then also the resistance to, to deny that this happened because it's, it's obviously a thing you don't want to remember, but a thing you can't, you can't ever forget. So, so it's a uh, very different, very three different, very pantoms. And that's, um, that's the beauty of form too. It's not always the subject matter can always, you know, it's not the, the subject matter can vary so much. And yet the form carries a lot of the power in there. Yeah. But you know, I just uh, reread yours. It's not the worst poem I've ever heard, uh, Richard. You know, I mean, I can't believe you are so self-effacing. It is frightening. It's well, terrific. you're putting yourself out there, Richard, right? You're putting yourself out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's I mean. It's not the worst radio show we've ever done either, by the way. You know what? You know what I love is um, there's an emphasis. I mean, there's it. it just, I don't know if rolling is the right word, but there's. The way that it's the weaving thing that yeah. Richard said at the top of the segment it, it just, that really perfectly just you can feel the flow of the adds weave. Power to the, yeah, to it's the great. Poem. I love this. I, I really love the, the part about TV dinners and Nancy Sinatra. <laughs> that really, <laughs> yeah. you know, remember that at a certain age. Right? And I and I think uh, you're you're all both making me think that also. Um, you know, in the way that song, you know, poetry has its DNA in song. Part of the pleasure of music, right, is getting to that that, that refrain or that repeating line. And there's a pleasure in in hearing something a second and a third time. But also, it changes, right? Because, um, you know, when you know, as as you hear the repeating line again in the second stanza, there's new information added. So it's the same line, but it also adds some more. There's a different context, and and that's par- that's partly what we try to do in the contemporary is, uh, as a contemporary writer and working with its forms, is try to see how we can how we can push that repetition. So it is technically a repetition, but it's also it it's building power. And then of course the end has to loop back all the way to the beginning. Uh, so it closes the weave, right? And then so, so you're, you're sort of building an anticipation. It's like, how are they gonna? How the hell are they gonna end this poem? How are they gonna get back to like the beginning, right? And it's like, and it's like so much like music that that's part of the pleasure is 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 hearing that repetition and how it builds in us, right? It builds in us and it builds an expectation, and it builds a and it builds um. It builds, um, yeah. It's just it, it's you. You you're waiting for it, right? <laughs> it's a perfect introduction. This was great, Richard. I love. Yes, this. Thank, thank you, you as so always. Much. I hope you have a nice Thanksgiving, Richard. 
Well, I, I, I'll try. <laughs> Talk to you soon, oh, at least I'm not in Miami this week, so it'll be yeah. Thanksgiving and not Sungiving uh, <laughs> with true. pork and black beans. Um, <laughs> I'm back in Bethel in my hometown here for Great. for the for the holidays. So looking forward to it. Great, enjoy. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, okay. Richard. Same to you both. <laughs> bye Richard bye now. Blanco joins us twice a month for Village Voice. He's the fifth presidential inaugural poet in United States history. His latest project is the Fine Press Book Boundaries, a collaboration with photographer Jacob Hessler. Uh, thanks again, Richard. And thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. You can always find us by way of our podcast on iTunes or at the App Store. Tune in tomorrow or join us in person at our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library for sports reporter Trenny Kuznarek, Boston City Council President Andrea Campbell, and Attorney General Moore Healy, who will take our questions and your calls. I want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedford, Jason Tereski, Arjun Singh, our engineer, John the Claw Parker, what's on TV, Jim? Well, a couple things. One, conservative lawyer Jennifer Braceros, a regular guest on the radio, will be joined by former federal judge Nancy Gardner. We're going to talk about a load of things, including, uh, remember Jennifer was talking about a relationship with George Conway? Yes. Who is the husband of Kellyanne Conway? Well, he has formed something called Checks and Balances, a forum for conservative lawyers to stand up to his wife's <laughs> boss. That'd be Donald Trump. I'm also going to be joined by, I've never met him, Kirk uh, Minahan. We talked to uh, Shirley about it on Friday, a former operated EEI host. He's at EEI, the sports station, no more, starting out on his own venture. Kirk will join me. And you're going to love this, Marty. With voters being rejected for signature discrepancies, which we talked about, Stephanie Lydon set out to find whether cursive is being taught even in anymore in schools, which should be great. And another tribute to you, my commentary tonight is about the pot shops opening tomorrow. Pot shops. We're going to have right. reports live from the scene, by the way, A from long our reporters. national nightmare, is Jim, over. is over. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Brown. Thank you for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow and have a wonderful afternoon. And what he knows you ain't had time to learn These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you Are you ready, Boots? Start walking.